This is the text-to-speech podfic reading of O oh Lord, please don't let me be misunderstood by Ms. Alex W.P. Chapter 1, Prologue June 7, 1978 Pete, no offense mate, but you're driving me mad. Can you shut up, please? Sirius was sitting with his legs flung across Remus's lap on the sofa next to the fire in the Gryffindor common room, a copy of the Daily Prophet folded in half against his knee. He scratched his head with his quill. A three-letter word for traitor, he murmured, then laughed. Think you can guess that one, Pete? Rat, Peter supplied coldly. Very good Wormtail, Sirius said. If you can't be quiet about that stupid ministry job you're abandoning us for, at least you can help me with the crossword. Dark red blotches crept up Peter's neck and across his chin and cheeks, but Sirius didn't notice. He hadn't even looked up from his crossword puzzle when he told Peter to be quiet. Remus had noticed, though. He whacked Sirius's foot with the back of his hand. Oi, Sirius said finally looking up. He opened his mouth to speak again, but Remus's furrowed brow silenced him. Remus jerked his head in Peter's direction. Peter was packing up his chess pieces in silence, not placing them carefully into each figure's designated spot in the wooden case as he usually did but pushing them hurriedly wherever he could cram them. Sirius rolled his eyes and returned to his crossword. Remus whacked him again. Hey Pete, sorry, Sirius said, barely keeping the sigh out of his voice. I was just kidding. I think the job sounds cracking. Really interesting. How many new port key applications did you say the office processed last week? 77. 177, Pete said dully, closing the box and flicking the bronze latches shut with his wand. Oh wow, Sirius said nodding, his eyes widening in mock amazement. Sounds intense. Peter ignored him and flicked his wand again, sending the wooden box zooming across the room onto one of the bookcases next to the portrait hole, barely missing the head of a first-year whose friend grabbed him by the shirt and pulled him out of the way just in time. Hey! You almost knocked that kid on his ass. Sirius said, but Peter was already disappearing up the spiral staircase to the boys' dormitories in a flash of red plaid pajamas. Do you have to do that? Remus said when he was sure Peter was out of earshot. Do what? Sirius asked, returning to his crossword. Give him constant shit about the ministry job. Sirius snorted. He deserves it. He shouldn't even be working for the corrupt fucking ministry. He should be joining the order full time, like us, he said. Not everyone's independently wealthy, you know, Remus said. Not everyone's bachelor uncle leaves them the contents of their Gringotts vault. Some people have to work for a living. Spare me, Mooney, Sirius scoffed. You know as well as I do that's not why he's taking the job. Remus sighed and closed his eyes. He did know. But the truth was, he was a bit envious of Peter, of his ability to slip into and out of the reality of war so easily. And he knew that Peter wasn't alone in this. In fact, most people in the wizarding world were living their lives largely as they usually did, even as Voldemort gained more and more followers and sympathizers all the time. It was true, 
the general wizarding public might be taking more precautions these days than they normally would have done, placing extra security charms around their houses, not venturing out after dark alone if they could avoid it, but for the most part, people were going about their lives as though everything was fine, with the war relegated to distant headlines in the Daily Prophet. They still went to work, went shopping, celebrated birthdays, laughed, fought, made love, had babies. Hell, even Lily and James were planning to get married as soon as they finished school. As usual, the war touched mostly those who couldn't escape it. Sure, there were the noble few who dove headlong into the fight because it was the right thing to do, the James Potters of the world, and those whose thirst for excitement couldn't resist the thrill of battle, like the Pruitt twins. But most people were content to simply shake their heads at the violence and the killing that they read about, as though it were theoretical and not actual blood and flesh. What a shame, they might say, sipping their morning tea and eating their toast. But a minute later, they flipped the newspaper page and moved on with their day. Out of sight, out of mind. War was abstract. It was black and white headlines and cold, impersonal death counts. If people couldn't even bring themselves to speak Voldemort's name, how could they risk their lives to face him? And why would they want to unless war barreled down their own streets? Remus couldn't say he blamed them. If he could ignore the war, he probably would have done the same, let it happen at a distance. Maybe he'd feel intellectually upset about it, maybe even whisper his disapproval to people he was sure shared his views, but be secretly relieved that it was happening to someone else and not to him. Unfortunately, he didn't have that kind of choice. Wars rage on the margins, and seven years at the top of his Hogwarts class hadn't erased the fact that Remus was a person who would always exist on the margins. James fought for the morality of it, but he didn't have to, not really. No one was hunting him. He could retreat into his pure blood safety and just wait out the storm until it blew over. Peter was a pure blood, too. He didn't need to fight. He didn't need to step into the line of fire, putting his family in danger in the process. Even Sirius could just suck it up and tow the black family line, like Regulus, if he really wanted to. But not everyone was so lucky. Not Mary, or Marlene, or Lily. Not anyone who came home to find the dark mark hovering above their house like a poisonous omen. And certainly not Remus. For Remus, it was hunt or be hunted. At least with a war going on he'd have something to do with himself. At least then he could be useful. Hey, Sirius said, sitting up and sliding his hand underneath Remus's shirt, gently rubbing his back. Remus looked up, surprised, and wondered how long he'd been quiet. Sirius watched him carefully, a small smile playing on his lips underneath his slightly furrowed brow. Where did you go? Sorry, Remus said. Just thinking. It's okay, Sirius said. I like watching you disappear into thought. Remus shook his head, coming back to himself. He returned Sirius's smile with a shrug. It's just. He said. I don't know if I blame Peter for trying to have a bit of a normal life. Why on earth would anyone want a normal life? Sirius said, absent-mindedly tracing his fingers along Remus's back. I think I'd die of boredom. Better than dying in battle, Remus said. I doubt it, 
Sirius returned. He sat up theatrically and thrust a fist into the air. We must have bloody noses and cracked crowns, who are you to argue with Shakespeare? Remus shook his head and smiled despite himself. It was no use and Sirius knew it. Quoting Shakespeare was one of the million ways that Sirius could make him melt instantly. Sirius gave him a slow, sly grin and looked around the empty common room. He leaned over and kissed behind Remus's ear. Since we're already invoking the bard, he breathed, making goosebumps erupt across the back of Remus's neck, his hand creeping around to Remus's stomach. Shall we make the beast with two backs? And suddenly war was the furthest thing from Remus's mind. After, they walked upstairs and shared another quiet kiss before pushing open their dormitory door. But the quiet didn't last long. Fluttering noisily around Sirius's bed were dozens and dozens of pieces of parchment, flying so thickly that they could barely see the four-poster's crimson hangings. As soon as Sirius stepped across the threshold into the room the pieces of paper swooped in unison like a flock of angry birds and started pelting him all over. Sirius put his arms instinctively over his head and closed his eyes against the assault. Remus pulled out his wand. Finite, he said over the din. The parchment froze and dropped to the floor around their feet. The only sound now was the faint buzzing of the muffliato charm coming from around James's bed. Sirius bent down to pick up one of the pieces of parchment. At the top was a large and ornate purple letterhead that read. Department of Magical Transportation, Port Key Office. Application for Usage of Port Key. Name, Sirius Oran Black. Persons using Port Key, SOB. Purpose for Port Key, to go fuck himself. Date of travel, ASAP. Object to be enchanted, Walburga's douchebag. Departure location, Gryffindor Tower. Arrival location, I don't give a shit. Jesus Christ, how many of these are there? Remus asked, looking around. I'm guessing 177, Sirius said before throwing his head back and laughing, hard and loud. He laughed until he couldn't breathe, then strode over to Peter's bed and yanked open the curtains. Good for you, Petey, he wheezed. Didn't think you had it in you. Peter gave a satisfied smirk and rolled over, wrenching his quilt over his head, and closing the curtains in Sirius's face with a disdainful flick of his middle finger. Sirius just laughed again and cleared the papers from the floor with a lazy swish of his own wand before pulling Remus onto the bed with him, delight and surprise still shining on his face. Years later, Remus would remember the night when Peter first bested Sirius in vivid detail. He'd remember the angry paper cuts covering Sirius's hands and arms, the letterhead's exact shade of purple, Peter's nasty little smirk, and the 177 port key applications littered across the floor. But most of all, most of all, he'd remember Sirius's laugh. Chapter 2, Nightmare November 1, 1981 3.45 a.m. An explosion boomed outside the flat window, and Remus woke with a gasp, his long legs sweaty and tangled in the bedsheets. He sat up and jumped slightly as another huge boom flashed, red and gold, across the sky, illuminating the silhouette of the building next door in a split-second burst. Instinctively, Remus glanced down, 
and his stomach lurched at sight of the empty spot next to him on the bed. His breath caught in his chest for a second before remembering that Sirius was on duty that night. He's fine, Remus told himself. Not supposed to be here. But then, another explosion. Remus got to his feet and threw the window open, sticking his head outside and squinting into the bright light as sparks and fireworks lit up the night sky across the horizon in all directions. What the? He muttered to himself. And then, a frantic, insistent knock on the flat door. And another. Faster, angrier. Whoever was outside was apparently pounding against the door with the side of their fist. Remus's heart thudded in his throat as he scrambled around the dark bedroom trying to find a t-shirt. Lupin, a voice growled, and the pounding on the door continued, more relentless than before. Lupin. Coming, Remus croaked, abandoning his search for a t-shirt and half running, half stumbling across the flat in a few strides, fear burning in his stomach. He wrenched open the door and saw Mad-Eye Moody standing in the flickering fluorescent light of the hallway. Remus barely had time to catch his breath when Moody pushed past him into the flat, slammed the door shut behind him, and started waving his wand at every possible exit, at the door, at every window, at the fireplace. Black been back tonight? Moody snarled, his wooden leg thudding insistently around the tiny flat as he made his rounds. Remus felt his heart pound in his throat and heard an odd ringing in his ears. No, he tried to say, but couldn't get the sound out. He cleared his throat and tried again, gripping the back of the couch. No, he choked. Moody, what? Protective enchantments. Need as many as we can get, he spat, as he continued to circle the place. Now he was flicking his wand at radiator vents and electric sockets. Moody. Remus yelled, finally, his voice shaking. What the fuck is going on? There's been a security breach, Moody said shortly, still not meeting Remus's eye. Remus's skin tingled and his knees weakened. He fought the urge to throw up. What kind of security breach, he breathed. Lily and James, Moody said. Gone. Gone. Remus said. What does that? Murdered, Moody said, all business. By Voldemort, by the looks of it. Before Remus could react, Moody rounded on him. You've been here all night, he asked, pointing his wand at Remus's throat. What? Remus said, his head swimming. Have you? Been here? All night? Moody yelled, spit flying into Remus's face. Yes, he sobbed, hardly aware he was crying until he heard his voice, thick and shaking and foreign, the ringing now louder in his ears. And Black? Moody barked. When was the last time you saw Black? This, yesterday morning, Remus gasped. Time. Ah, ah, around ten o'clock. Stay here, Moody said, lowering his wand, apparently satisfied. Do not move until you hear word from me or Dumbledore. Do you understand? Don't open that door for anyone. Remus didn't answer. He was staring at Moody, unblinking, his breath shallow and his mouth dry. Do you understand, me, Lupin? Moody shouted, shaking him by the shoulder.
sparks flew from the end of his wand, igniting the threadbare carpet at their feet. Remus nodded. Moody stamped out the flames with the stump of his wooden leg. He turned to leave, and Remus found his voice. No, he said to Moody's back. He lurched forward and it was Remus grabbing Moody by the shoulder now, him shaking the man in front of him so hard that his teeth clattered together. No, I don't understand, he shouted into Moody's scarred and pitted face. What the hell happened? Lily and James, he started in a low voice. Vold. I heard that. Remus shouted, shoving Moody hard. But the aura braced himself against the blow and cast a shield charm between them with so much force that it slammed Remus backwards onto the floor, knocking the wind out of him. Your man black, Moody said, looking down at him. Appears to have lived up to the family name. Don't open this door again tonight. There'll be an aura standing guard on the sidewalk outside. And with that, he turned and left the flat, slamming the door behind him. Remus felt the shield charm drop and a ripple of hot, metallic magic on the other side, locking him in. He sat in stunned silence for a second before turning and heaving up the contents of his stomach onto the floor. He cried and puked until the world turned white, then black, and then into nothing at all. Chapter 3 Upside Down November 1, 1981 3.02 p.m. Remus woke up to the sound of low voices talking from the next room. He sat up, startled, and momentarily disoriented. Where was he? Why was he on the couch? The late afternoon sun cast the living room in a hazy golden light that seemed so at odds with the horrible memories that came rushing back to him as he sat up and looked around. The vomit was gone from the floor. There was a blanket across his body and an unfamiliar gold goblet sat on the coffee table. He was wearing the t-shirt he'd been looking for. His wand was nowhere in sight. Ah, Remus, you're awake. Dumbledore's quiet voice sent a surge of adrenaline through Remus's limbs. He stood up quickly, the blanket dropping to the floor, and turned to look at the old man. A house call from Dumbledore was never a good thing. He looked exceptionally out of place, his purple spangled robes, long white beard, and highly polished buckled boots were weirdly juxtaposed against the drab furniture and nicotine-stained walls of the sparsely furnished flat. He also looked exceptionally tired, but Remus didn't care. What's going on, where's Sirius? Remus demanded, squaring his shoulders, and stepped toward Dumbledore. He got nearly nose to nose with him his body practically begging for a physical fight, any reason to discharge this terrible energy that coursed through his body. Dumbledore was tall, but so was he. Neither man blinked, as Remus's blazing brown eyes met Dumbledore's cool blue ones. Dumbledore only looked sad, though, and put a hand on Remus's shoulder. Back it down, son, Moody said, stumping in behind Dumbledore. Or I'll do it for you. Alaster, Dumbledore's voice was quiet but tinged with a note of warning. He didn't turn around. He simply closed his eyes and took a deep breath as Moody walked past and positioned himself behind Remus next to the flat door. Moody grunted and his electric blue eye whizzed and darted around the room, but he didn't speak again. Remus, 
Dumbledore said, opening his eyes and fixing them on Remus with that X-raying stare. Sirius is on his way to Azkaban prison. Why, what's he doing? When will he be back? Remus said. Whatever he's doing, I want to go with him. I don't care what the mission is, I'll help him, I. He won't be back, Dumbledore said, and now tears were brimming behind his half-moon spectacles. He reached out a hand to touch Remus's arm, but Remus jerked it away. Something Moody said last night was coming back to him now. Remus shook his head. No, Remus breathed, and then shouted. Stop it. Tell me where he is. Now. Remus, Lily and James are dead. Voldemort killed them. He knew where to find them. Black was their secret keeper. Stop it. Stop talking. Tell me where he is. He is on his way to Azkaban prison. You're lying. Remus yelled, lunging at Dumbledore, but Moody was quicker and grabbed his arms, pinning them behind his back. Let me go. Remus yelled, thrashing and screaming. Let me go and tell me the truth, where is he? Where is he? Remus, please, Dumbledore said quietly. I will tell you everything I know. Please. Shall I bind him, Albus? Moody's voice ran harshly in Remus's ear. No, Dumbledore replied. There'll be no need. Dumbledore reached into his robes and pulled out a shining silver flask. He handed it to Remus. Fire whiskey, Dumbledore said simply. With a calming draft. Dumbledore nodded over Remus's shoulder to Moody, who relinquished his hold on Remus's arms. Remus grabbed the flask out of Dumbledore's hand roughly, yanked out the cork with his teeth and spat it onto the ground at Dumbledore's feet. Then he tipped the flask backward and swallowed in ferocious gulps, the fire whiskey burning his throat and stomach. Remus relished the feeling. It felt real, like the only thing tethering him to the earth. His breath heaved as he pushed the empty flask into Dumbledore's chest more forcefully than necessary. Dumbledore just watched him, unflappably, annoyingly, horrifically, calm. Remus shook his head and blinked away hot, stabbing tears as he stared into Dumbledore's face. I swear to God, Remus said through gritted teeth. You better start fucking talking. Chapter 4, Dream Truths November 5, 1981 Sometime in the middle of the night Mooney. Hmm. Promise me something. Remus had nearly drifted away to sleep, but Sirius whispered the words with such urgency that Remus was pulled back immediately. Sirius was curled into Remus's back, his arm pulled tightly across Remus's waist and gripped his hand as though he was trying to keep him from running away. Remus rolled over to face Sirius, who had scrunched so close that they were sharing a pillow. Sirius's eyes were wide, and they searched Remus's face with a quiet desperation that made Remus feel slightly frightened. What is it? Remus asked, watching Sirius carefully, no longer remotely tired. Promise me, Sirius whispered again. That no matter what happens, out there, that we stick together. Of course, Remus replied and leaned in to kiss Sirius, who cut him off. No, Sirius said, 
his voice a little louder now. I mean, that no matter what happens, no matter what anyone else says or does, promise me that we'll always trust each other. Promise. I promise, Remus said. He tried to smile but Sirius didn't smile back. Instead, his forehead creased. Because there's nothing anyone could say, anyone, that could make me stop trusting you and loving you. I know that, Remus said, raising his hand to Sirius's cheek and stroking his jaw gently. Sirius's eyes closed at Remus's touch, and he squeezed Remus's hand tighter. A tear rolled down Sirius's cheek. Sirius, Remus said. He brushed the tear away but that only seemed to make more tears come. What's the matter? Is this about Gid and Fabe? Gideon and Fabian Pruitt had been killed only a few weeks before. That's when Dumbledore finally became sure that there was a spy inside the Order of the Phoenix. The Order had suspected for at least a year that there was a spy in their ranks who'd been passing information to Voldemort, but there was never much proof. Just odd coincidences and near misses that left them all suspicious and on edge. But this time, the Death Eaters knew exactly where each of the twins were stationed, at two different locations at other ends of the country on the same night, knew what time and exactly where each would arrive, and which disguises they were using. Gid and Fabe were impersonating muggles, but the Death Eaters picked them out with ease, executing the ambush with precision. It was a coordinated attack, performed cleanly and swiftly. It was then, that the Order understood that they weren't suffering from mere paranoia. They knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that someone close was betraying them. And that it was only a matter of time before they'd do it again. It's that and. Sirius's voice trailed off. Remus, I love you. Okay. I love you. His voice was insistent. Pleading. I know you do. I love you too. I mean I will always love you. There is nothing that will ever make me stop loving you, Sirius said and he was really crying now, saying. I love you, I love you, again and again between sobs. Hush, Remus said, kissing Sirius's cheek, his forehead, his neck, his lips. Hush. I know. I know. Sirius kissed him back, desperate through tears, grabbing Remus as though he were a life raft in a storm. Their bodies met and Remus knew that he would do anything to always be Sirius's life raft, his safe harbor, his light in the darkness. He promised Sirius all of this out loud, but also silently and to himself, tattooed it on his heart. I will do anything for you. Forever. I promise. I promise. I promise. Remus woke up in an armchair, gasping, as though he'd just come up for air after being stuck underwater. He had been fighting sleep for days, but when it came, he was helpless, and his dreams took over. Always the same one. He and Sirius had had that conversation barely a week ago and now, he was dreaming about it so vividly and completely it was as though he was living it a second, third, fourth time. Every time he fell asleep the dream was the same, as real and solid as Sirius himself had been that night. If Remus closed his eyes, maybe he could still feel the ghost of Sirius's hands on his back, of his warm breath in his ear, but it was like trying to grab smoke. 
Remus rolled his head to the side and reached for a cigarette on the end table. Evening was closing in. He lit the cigarette, the match flaring in the dim gray light and closed his eyes, inhaling deeply. What, exactly, had Sirius been asking him to promise that night? If Dumbledore and the Daily Prophet were to be believed, Sirius had known he was about to give Lily and James to Voldemort. Was he making Remus promise that he'd stick by his side? Was he confessing his plans to Remus? Was he telling Remus that even if he'd joined Voldemort and betrayed the Order, betrayed his best friends, that he'd still love Remus anyhow? Or was it all just a master manipulation by the heir of the most ancient and powerful pure-blood family in existence? A way to cover his tracks. No, Remus thought to himself. Don't think. Don't think. But he had to think. Because it just didn't add up. He didn't care what Dumbledore and the Ministry said or how many witnesses they'd interviewed. It didn't make sense. Sirius wouldn't do this. In the days following Sirius's arrest, Remus forced Dumbledore to sit down and tell him every second of what happened over the course of that terrible 24 hours. He'd pulled out a stack of parchment and a quill and pushed Dumbledore to relay every detail, every utterance, every minute of the timeline, sometimes two or three times in a row, just so Remus could be sure to get it all down on paper. He'd asked Dumbledore to repeat certain parts, speak more slowly so he could write down each of his words perfectly. He read and reread his notes, sometimes out loud to Dumbledore so the old man could verify that yes, that's exactly what he'd said. From what Remus could tell, there was a lot of speculation involved in this story. A lot of assumptions. As far as he was concerned there were only a few things that they knew for sure. Voldemort attacked the Potters on Halloween night around 8 p.m. James and Lily were dead. Harry was alive. Sirius went to the Potter's house around midnight. He spoke to Hagrid and gave him his motorbike, saying he wouldn't need it anymore. Voldemort was gone. His wand was not recovered. The second attack happened on Coventry Street around noon on November 1st. Eyewitnesses said they heard Peter shout. Lily and James, Sirius, how could you? An explosion cracked a 20-foot wide hole from sidewalk to sidewalk, shattering shop windows and breaking a water main that flooded the street. Peter was gone. His finger was recovered. Twelve muggles were dead. Eyewitnesses said they saw Sirius laughing. Sirius was taken straight to Azkaban by a team of hit wizards. More than anything, Remus wanted to talk to Lily and James. He couldn't decide which feelings should take precedence in his mind and body, grief and heartbreak over the death of his friends or righteous fury over the lack of investigation into Sirius's involvement in it, so they all swirled inside him like a sick stew, fighting for supremacy. He cried and raged, drank and smoked, broke drinking glasses and teacups just by looking at them, lit a fire in the grate without meaning to, made records fly out of their sleeves if a song popped into his head that he tried to push away. Everything was pain. The fact that Dumbledore wouldn't listen to him shouldn't have come as much of a surprise. Remus always vaguely knew that he'd never been more than a pawn to Dumbledore, a handy werewolf pet and disposable foot soldier, and now that the war was over, the chess master could call checkmate and walk away. 
Remus was no longer a Hogwarts student or an army combatant, and therefore, of no more use. Dumbledore owed him no protection or help. Instead, Remus was back to being who he had really been all along, a half-blood, half-breed with no money, no family, and now, not even any friends. Certainly no one in the ministry would listen to him. He'd recently found out that he wasn't even allowed to visit Azkaban. Remus had dug around in the closet for Sirius's dress robes, which were several inches too short for him at the hem and sleeves, so he could look presentable at an appointment with the head of the Azkaban management office to find out the protocol for visiting prisoners. But he never even got past the receptionist. I'm sorry sir, said the frightened looking witch at the front desk after she'd summoned his werewolf registry file. Unfortunately, Azkaban has a policy against allowing part humans and dark creatures from visiting the facility. Can I send correspondence? he asked. No. But James. Dumbledore and the Ministry would have listened to James, with his aristocratic, pure blood pedigree, flawlessly posh manner, and indescribable air of clout and authority that he carried so effortlessly. James would have known what to do, too. Which ministry official to send an owl to or call in a favor from? Remus couldn't fail to see the bitter irony that the marauder with the least influence and no wizarding world connections was the only one left. Remus hadn't been able to bring himself to sleep in his and Sirius's bed since Halloween, so he made a habit of moving to the couch each night when he woke up panting and sweating in the armchair from the dream. He moved through the flat, and his days, like an unbound spirit, going outside only for cigarettes and cheap whiskey from the store across the street. He wanted desperately to help Sirius, but grief and dead ends kept blocking his path. Plus, he had the distinct impression that he was being followed any time he ventured outside. But it was James and Lily who ended up coming to the rescue after all. Chapter 5, Boiling Point November 6, 1981 Dumbledore had decided against holding a public funeral for Lily and James, fearing that it would be mobbed with rowdy revelers celebrating the end of Voldemort and turning what should have been a somber occasion into a party. Instead, he opted for a small graveside ceremony at the churchyard in Godric's Hollow with the remaining members of the Order. Remus, Mary, Moody, Dumbledore, Arabella Fig, Bathilda Bagshot, and a few other people that Remus recognized only by sight gathered around a white tombstone under the slate-gray November sky while an ancient old wizard spoke meaningless platitudes about love and sacrifice. Remus couldn't bear to look at the freshly dug earth of the grave so instead he looked around for Lily's sister. She wasn't there. Dumbledore said she wasn't coming and had made only one request for the tombstone, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 26. Remus supposed it would have been too painful for Petunia to mourn her sister with a bunch of strangers. Still, he thought she might have changed her mind, if only for Harry's sake. That Lily and James's son wasn't at their funeral seemed especially cruel. But then again, everything about this was cruel. When the service was finished, Mary walked over to him and wordlessly wrapped him into a tight hug. He hugged her back, inhaling her familiar smell and felt something in his chest release. They cried silently into each other's arms for a few minutes before she pulled away. Fancy a walk, love? she asked, looking up at him with a sad smile and red eyes. 
Remus nodded and they put their arms around each other's waists, about to walk away from the gravesite when a small man wearing a top hat stopped them. Mr. Lupin, he said, extending a hand, and Remus shook it. Daedalus Diggle. Dumbledore tells me you've done admirable work with the werewolves for the Order. Been wanting to meet you and thank you. Good man. Oh, Remus said, unsure of what to say. Nice to meet you. The pleasure is mine, surely. Diggle said, removing his top hat and bowing grandly before replacing it on his head. Dangerous business. And I hear you shared a flat with Sirius Black. Danger on all fronts, I. You must be made of strong stuff. A true Gryffindor, through and through, I'd wager. Whatever tightness in Remus's chest that had unraveled when he hugged Mary was quickly returning. His heartbeat quickened and he set his jaw, looking Diggle straight in the eye. Sirius wasn't dangerous, he said in a low voice, and he felt Mary's hand clench on his back. Not dangerous. Diggle said, looking as though he wasn't sure whether to laugh or run away in fear. He was you-know-who's top henchman. You don't know that, Remus said, his voice shaking. Mary sighed beside him. Remus, she said in an undertone, but both men ignored her. How dare you? Diggle said, and it was his voice shaking now. How dare you say that? Look where we are standing. He gestured down at Lily and James's grave and looked back at Remus with wide, angry eyes. You should be ashamed of yourself, he continued, backing away and shaking his head in disgust. You're not fit to be here if you can't even condemn the man who put them in the ground and orphaned their son. Gentlemen. Dumbledore said striding between them. Dumbledore. Diggle said. Have you heard Lupin's raving? Defending Sirius Black. And doing it here. At Lily and James's funeral. Diggle spat at Remus's feet. You're disgusting, he said, and turned and stalked off. Remus took deep steadying breaths. Remus, Dumbledore started, but Remus cut him off. Don't, he choked. Sorry Mary. He extricated himself from Mary, who nodded sadly. He could feel their eyes on his back, but he didn't turn around as he walked away. He simply strode through the cemetery until he was alone behind the old stone church. He turned where he stood and apparated home. Dumbledore knocked on Remus's flat door an hour later, and when he did, Remus felt different, as though a lifetime of revelations had passed through him between that morning and now. He was filled with a new kind of fire, a relentless drive forward as though his body and mind were accelerating through the air on Sirius's motorbike. It was something he'd never felt before. I want to talk to them, Remus said to his old headmaster. I'm not sure who you mean, Dumbledore said. The muggles. The people who saw it happen, Remus snapped. I want to talk to them myself. I'm sorry Remus, but their memories have already been modified, Dumbledore said, shaking his head. You're telling me, Remus said, with barely suppressed rage. That you've wiped the memories of the only people who saw what happened. Not me, the Ministry, Dumbledore said. And yes, their memories were wiped as soon as their witness interviews were over. Did you give them Veritaserum? 
to make sure they were telling the truth. There was no need for Veritaserum. Twenty independent eyewitnesses corroborated the same story. Their interviews were recorded, and their memories were modified. Then reverse it. Remus yelled. Every picture frame rattled around them, and they flew off the walls, the glass splintering as they hit the ground. Dig around in their brains, I know you know how. Performing legitimacy on a muggle is illegal, Dumbledore said evenly. As I believe you know. Well, so is sending a man to prison for life without a trial, Remus shouted, his voice breaking. Or it fucking used to be last week. Laws change when they must. Yeah, obviously, Remus spat. Remus, if I thought for an instant that Black was innocent, I would do everything in my power to free him, but I'm afraid the evidence is unquestionable. Black was the Potter's secret keeper. I offered to do it myself, but James insisted on Black, Dumbledore said. Did you watch them perform the Fidelius charm? No, I did not, Dumbledore admitted. Then you don't know shit, Remus said. I know you. You don't know anything about me, Remus said. He stood up, pulled on Sirius's black leather jacket, and grabbed his wand. Where are you? Dumbledore started, but Remus cut him off. What, am I a prisoner now, too? Remus asked. I know you've got Aurors stationed all around the block. Are they going to keep me inside? No, Dumbledore said. Are you going to have them fucking follow me again? No. Good, Remus said, opening the flat door and nodding towards the hallway. Get out of my house. Dumbledore simply inclined his head, stepped outside, turned on the spot, and vanished with a loud crack. Remus stepped into the hallway, too, slamming the door shut behind him. Two can play at this game, he thought, and he apparated. Chapter 6, Coventry Street November 6, 1981, later that day. There were construction crews filling Coventry Street when Remus arrived there, blocking traffic and obstructing the sidewalks as they busily worked to repair the damage that had rocked the street. Remus had to remind himself, not even a week before. Remus had seen the devastating photos in the Daily Prophet, and it had looked like a bomb went off, with shop windows shattered, a huge crater in the concrete and bodies strewn everywhere. Now, many of the broken windows were either boarded up or being repaired. The street crew looked as though they had finished repairing the water main and now were working on putting the street itself back together. All the commotion made it hard for Remus to get inside the handful of shops that were still open, but he fought his way through, diligently asking everyone he met what they knew about what happened on November 1st. The Muggle News had reported the incident as a gas explosion and that's the story that everyone parroted to Remus. The handful of people he managed to find who had been eyewitnesses to the event all told exactly the same story, almost verbatim, in fact, their eyes hazing over as they did so. Yes, it was a terrible thing to see, they'd say robotically. The explosion was terrifying. I thought my shop would catch fire from the gas leak. So many people died. I'll never forget it. Does the name Sirius mean anything to you? He'd pressed the person, despite their vague eyes. Or Lily. Or James. Sirius, 
they'd ask blankly, shaking their heads. No, I'm sorry. By the time Remus had heard the same story, word for word, from the seventh person three hours later, he conceded defeat. Well, they're certainly thorough, he thought bitterly of the ministry as he walked out of Coventry Street and onto the busier Haymarket Street. He looked around for a few seconds to get his bearings. He was close to Trafalgar Square and Charing Cross Road, and, he realized with a jolt of recognition. 12 Grimald Place. This revelation made Remus's heart sink. London was huge and yet the crime scene was only a mile and a half from Sirius's ancestral home. As though he needed any other strikes against him. Remus sighed and walked on, wishing he'd brought his own corduroy jacket instead of Sirius's leather one. It was too small for him, and he couldn't sip it against the chilly November wind. Instead, he shoved his hands deep into the pockets and walked, through Leicester Square, past the British Museum, keeping his eyes on his black and white trainers as they traced the cracks in the sidewalk until he ended up where he knew, instinctively, that he was headed. He arrived in the rundown square and stared up at the row of dingy houses. Numbers 11 and 13 Grimald Place stood incongruously side by side, and he cursed the stupid black family and their pure-blood fanaticism. Of course, the place would be unplottable and under the Fidelius charm and whatever other security magic protected their house from muggles, filth, and scum. Remus took one last look at the spot where he knew the black family home was hidden and turned to walk away when he heard something behind him that made him stop. Bella, don't, said a shrill woman's voice. I'm begging you, please. He's gone, it's over. The voice sounded slightly familiar to Remus who turned to see two women striding toward him. He jerked his head away quickly, his heart thumping violently against his ribcage. He looked at the ground to hide his face but stayed within earshot as they approached, their high heels clicking against the sidewalk as they neared their destination. Stay out of it, sissy, said another voice, which spoke in the same upper crust accent as the first woman but sounded harsher, angrier. I have to do this. No, you don't, sissy replied, and Remus heard them stop abruptly, mere feet away from where he stood. He bent down to tie his shoe and chanced a glance out of the corner of his eye. And I don't want any part of it, either. The two women stood in front of the spot between eleven and thirteen Grimald Place. They looked remarkably alike, both tall, lithe, and beautiful, but one had long, straight white blonde hair, the other, a tangle of black curls that sprung from her head like Medusa's snakes. The blonde woman had grabbed the other's wrist trying to pull her back, but the dark-haired woman jerked her hand away. Then stay out of it, Bella said and kept walking, no longer down the street, but straight at the spot between the houses where numbers 11 and 13 Grimald Place met. A second later, she disappeared. Sissy stared after her for a moment and walked away in the direction they'd come from. Remus thought he heard her choke back a sob. His breath caught in his throat and suddenly he felt very exposed standing there on the sidewalk in front of the black family manor. Just because he couldn't see whoever was inside didn't mean they couldn't look out the window and see him. He was about to walk into a nearby loo in the park across the street to disapparate when he heard another set of footsteps. He looked up and saw someone else he recognized, this time from Hogwarts, Barty Crouch, Jr., 
that slimy sadistic friend of Snape's who had made it his mission to torture mudbloods all through school. He, too, walked toward the building and vanished. Remus retreated to a bench across the street and watched with his head bowed as a steady stream of people walked toward the houses and disappeared. Chapter 7, Spiral November 8, 1981 Two days later, Remus found out what he had witnessed in front of 12 Grimald Place. I guess Dumbledore ignored my letter until it was too late, Remus thought bitterly as he read the front page of this morning's Daily Prophet. Aurors tortured with Cruciatus curse. Death Eaters arrested at scene. For suspected Death Eaters were arrested last night for the alleged abduction and torture of Frank and Alice Longbottom, two of the Ministry of Magic's most decorated Aurors. According to ministry officials, the Death Eaters were attempting to find information about the whereabouts of he who must not be named, who disappeared on October 31 in Godric's Hollow after murdering Lily and James Potter and attempting to murder their 15-month-old son, Harry. Mr. and Mrs. Longbottom are currently in St. Mungo's Hospital for Magical Maladies, where they are being treated for Cruciatus curse-related injuries. The four suspected Death Eaters, Bellatrix Lestrange, Nay Black, Rodolphius Lestrange, Robaston Lestrange, and Bartimius Crouch, Jr., were apprehended and arrested as they attempted to flee the scene. Aurors were alerted of their actions by an anonymous tip. Anonymous my ass, Remus thought, but kept reading. Bellatrix Black Lestrange is first cousin of Sirius Black, who alerted you-know-who to the Potter's whereabouts. Black also murdered twelve muggles and Peter Pettigrew, an employee at the Ministry of Magic's Portkey office who posthumously received the Order of Merlin, first class, this week, for his efforts to confront Black on Coventry Street in London. Eyewitnesses spoke of Pettigrew's heroism before having their memories modified. Black is currently serving a life sentence in Azkaban prison. Remus slammed the newspaper onto the table in disgust and rubbed his eyes. Fucking Dumbledore always everywhere and involved in everything as long as it suited his grand plan. Remus had written to the headmaster as soon as he arrived home from Grimald Place, relaying everyone and everything he saw and heard, only to get a curt, thank you, in reply. And now poor Frank and Alice were paying the price for Dumbledore's dismissal, just more collateral damage for the sake of the greater good. They weren't the first, and Remus was sure they wouldn't be the last. If Remus didn't fully understand before how alone he was in his quest for justice for Sirius, he did now. He knew, fully and completely, that if Dumbledore barely lifted a finger to protect Frank and Alice Longbottom, whose bravery and counterintelligence work did so much for the war and the Order of the Phoenix, then there wasn't a chance in hell that Remus could expect any help for this. Days passed. Remus walked the streets of London from morning until night, his bad hip aching and the growing moon churning blood and magic through his veins like a rising tide. He chain-smoked and chain-thought, endless, circular thoughts, self-destructive things that led nowhere, like a snake devouring its own tail. And when the full moon crested and bloomed on the night of November 11th, he relished the relief and freedom of becoming the wolf, of running and howling through the thick, wild woods until his lonely, grief-stricken body was exhausted and exorcised of pain. The next morning, he woke, naked and shivering, under a grove of ancient Scots pine in the Abernethy forest. 
The wolf had chosen to curl up on a bed of soft green moss, and as Remus opened his eyes, he gasped at the early morning sunlight glittering through the warm mist that rose from his body. It was so beautiful, like magic hanging in the air. He wished Sirius could see it, too, I like this place and could willingly waste my time in it, he might say, pulling Remus into a long, languid kiss, and Remus realized with a lurch of sadness that this was the first full moon he'd spent alone in a very long time. Hot tears burned his eyes and although his body hurt, it was in a satisfying kind of way, and the ground was soft underneath him. He was sad and tired, but no one would miss him if he stayed here all day, all week, or forever, so he conjured a thick blanket and laid back down underneath it for a while without getting dressed. He closed his eyes and felt his mind start spinning on that endless and exhausting hamster wheel of thought again. Twelve days. How had it been twelve days since his world imploded? Twelve days wasn't a long time, but these twelve felt simultaneously like the longest and shortest of his life. He'd been apart from Sirius and his friends longer than this before, of course, over the summer holidays or when Remus was carrying out missions with werewolf packs for the Order, but each of those times had come with the steadying knowledge that his time away was only temporary. There was always an end in sight, the possibility of counting down the days and hours until he got home, each second of the ticking clock bringing him closer to Sirius. Now the counting went up and not down, endlessly, and forever, every day leading them further apart. Soon it would be two weeks, then three, then months and years. The prospect of time stretching out before him, empty of Sirius, empty of his touch or his smile or his wry laugh, made Remus feel an aching futility that hollowed out his insides. But before his thoughts could spiral anymore, a burst of silverly light broke the stillness and formed into the shape of a magnificent phoenix that spread its wings and opened its beak. Lestrange trial, the Patronus said in Dumbledore's voice. Tomorrow. 8 a.m. Ministry of Magic. Courtroom 10. Please come. We may need your eyewitness testimony. Chapter 8, Blood Traitor. November 13, 1981. Remus arrived dutifully at courtroom 10 at 8 o'clock the next morning, but no one needed his testimony. The Death Eaters admitted what they'd done proudly and defiantly, except Barty Crouch, Jr., the sniveling coward, who denied everything and groveled to his mother and father to spare him. Bellatrix had even declared her continued allegiance to Voldemort, her mouth twisting and curling with insane glee as she shouted. The Dark Lord will rise again. It was chaos as the four Death Eaters were sentenced to Azkaban. The crowd was on their feet, shouting and jeering, Barty Crouch. Junior, was sobbing, Mrs. Crouch swooned and fainted, dementors and harsh-faced wizarding guards swarmed around the prisoners as they were ushered out of the raucous courtroom. It was a terrible scene and Remus took no joy in it. But worst of all were the dementors. Remus felt sick after having been in their presence for a mere hour and the thought of Sirius being surrounded by these evil creatures day and night made Remus's heart rage and ache even harder. A blonde woman with rhinestone-studded, cat-eyed glasses and long red fingernails shouted a question over the din to the prisoners as they passed in front of her, a notebook and quill poised eagerly in her hands as she did so. Bellatrix, she shouted. Bellatrix.
how do you feel about joining your cousin in Azkaban? Bellatrix tilted her head and paused in front of the woman, her face contorted with rage. She tried to raise a hand but struggled against the shackles that bound her wrists. That filthy blood traitor, she screamed, lunging forward. How dare you! How dare you! But a guard shoved her hard in the back and she kept walking. As the Wizengamot filed out and the courtroom slowly emptied around him, Remus buried his face in his hands. He felt unsettled. Had Bellatrix just called Sirius a blood traitor? Remus? A soft voice spoke very close to him. He looked up and gasped at the curly dark hair and heavily lidded eyes of the woman standing over him. She smiled gently and sat down. I thought that was you, she said, and Remus breathed a sigh of relief. Andromeda, he said. Hi. Hi, she said and sighed heavily. She looked at her fingers which were twisting in her lap. Now that she was sitting next to Remus on the cold stone bench, it seemed she didn't know what to say. Remus put a hand lightly on her back, unsure of what to do, but the next moment, she had folded herself into him and was sobbing on his shoulder. Oh Remus, she cried. What happened to everything? Remus didn't have a good answer, so he just hugged her and let her cry until someone from the magical maintenance department came in with a push broom and an annoyed look. Come on, Remus whispered, taking Andromeda by the elbow, and pulling her up to stand, we can talk outside. Andromeda sniffed, nodded, and allowed herself to be led out of the courtroom. They rode the lift up to the ministry atrium in silence and emerged into what felt like an inappropriately sunny morning. Remus put a hand on Andromeda's shoulder and steered her gently across the street to a small park where he ordered them each a coffee from a street cart before settling onto a wrought iron bench. A bunch of punks with spiky pink mohawks, studded leather jackets, and Sex Pistols t-shirts sat on the edge of a fountain smoking cigarettes and laughing with each other. Sirius loved the Sex Pistols. Remus watched them and felt impossibly old and weary, even though he supposed they must have been close to his own age. Johnny Rotten's voice rang in Remus's head. No future, no future, no future. Are you doing okay? Andromeda asked finally. She was watching the punks, too, and Remus wondered if she was also thinking of Sirius. Not really, he admitted. You? No, she shook her head. I know it's crazy, but I thought maybe if Bella saw me in the crowd, she'd. Her voice trailed off. I don't know what I thought would happen, she said, sounding defeated. I wanted to be there for Sirius, too, but there was no trial and I just felt so helpless after that. Remus swallowed hard, weighing whether to say what he was thinking. Sirius loved Andromeda and she'd been there for him when Sirius had been tortured and disowned. After all, the same had happened to her. Andromeda, he said. Do you really think Sirius could have done this? She was quiet for a few moments before answering, and when she finally spoke it was to the tree branches overhead. If you'd asked me that a month ago, she said with a heavy sigh. I would have said no. Never. Not my sweet, reckless, wild, pure-hearted cousin. She started to cry again. But now. She said, her voice cracking through the tears.
I don't know what to think. You grow up with someone. You live with them, sleep next to them, cry with them, tell jokes with them. You think you know them. Bella was my best friend, until she wasn't. And now serious. She hid her face in her hands and sobbed. I don't believe Sirius did this, Remus said with a firmness and resolve that surprised even himself. Andromeda looked up at him. But all those witnesses. She said. Didn't hear or see what they thought they did, Remus cut her off. Do you know something? Andromeda asked sharply, her eyes widening. No, Remus admitted and Andromeda's face fell. But I know Sirius. And I heard Bellatrix say something strange just now as she was leaving the courtroom. Andromeda scoffed. You mean stranger than the deranged shit she usually says? She called Sirius a blood traitor. Andromeda answered in a whisper. What? Chapter 9, Sisters November 15, 1981 Remus spent the next few minutes telling Andromeda what he'd seen and heard outside Twelve Grimald Place a few days earlier. She listened in silence, staring at her feet, and shaking her head in disgust. So, they planned it, she sighed. Really, truly planned it. Seems that way, Remus said. And Narcissa knew about it and didn't do anything, Andromeda said. Like always. Remus nodded. If Andromeda hadn't looked so much like Narcissa and Bellatrix, he wouldn't have been able to believe they were sisters. Remus had no siblings, but the family dynamics he'd seen from afar were fraught. Lily and Petunia, Sirius and Regulus. Even the few sets of brothers at St. Edmund's seemed to fight with each other more than they did anything else. But there were glimpses of other things between them all, too. He thought of the Wilson boys at St. Edmund's, wild, feral things, with barely a year separating each of the five of them in age. They were a cacophony of bruised cheeks and buzz cuts and seemed to pound on each other indiscriminately, but if anyone outside their pack dared to say or do anything against one of them, the other four would descend on the offender as one and beat him to a pulp. Siblings, it seemed, had a way of summoning emotions from each other that no one else could. Remus remembered the way Sirius had stiffened and grew cold at any mention of Regulus, or the way Lily's eyes filled with tears the morning of her wedding when she understood, finally, that Petunia would not be coming. Even Andromeda seemed to vacillate between anger and sadness when talking about her sisters. Do you ever talk to Narcissa? Remus said, not sure if this was an okay thing to ask. Talk. No, Andromeda said but we've been in touch a little bit over the years. She ignored my wedding but sent a baby gift when Nymphadora was born. A sterling silver rattle engraved with the black family crest. So stupid. What the fuck is a baby supposed to do with a silver rattle? She laughed bitterly. I sent something when her baby was born, too, she continued. She named him Draco, so I sent a little pillow embroidered with a green dragon. No idea if she uses it, but I got an owl thanking me for it a few days later. Remus nodded. Everything's just been so formal between us for the past few years. I haven't even seen her in person since the day I told my family I was marrying Ted, she said.
I kind of thought she'd show up today, but Narcissa's never been the kind of person to put herself directly in the line of fire, you know. Especially with that piece of shit husband of hers claiming he's been under the imperious curse this whole time. Coward. This was news to Remus. Has he been? Under the imperious curse. Andromeda laughed again. No. I'd bet 1,000 silver baby rattles that he was a full-fledged Death Eater. He's just a slippery git who's rich and smart. You'll never see Malfoy's fingerprints on anything. They were quiet for another minute and Remus contemplated asking Andromeda about the last time she talked to Bellatrix, but Andromeda spoke first. So. What next, she asked. Her voice was hard and filled with a resolve that hadn't been there before. She was no longer crying. What do you mean? You think Sirius is innocent. What do we do about it? Do, do you think so too? Remus asked. I want to, Andromeda said. And I think that's enough of a reason to try to find out. I've been trying to save that kid since he was born. Why should I stop now? Remus felt his face break into its first real smile in almost two weeks. It felt strange, but good. Yeah, you have, he agreed. He loves you. He loves you, she said, holding his gaze. You're a good guy, Remus. Remus's eyes prickled with tears, and he looked away. Hey, Andromeda said, placing a hand on his shoulder and leaning toward him intently. No more crying, okay? We've got work to do. Chapter 10, Game Plan November 16, 1981 They had agreed to meet again the following afternoon at Andromeda's house to start working on their plan of action, and Remus couldn't help but chuckle at the blatantly bland muggleness of her neighborhood, chosen, no doubt, as a final, fuck you, to the ancient and most noble house of black. Still, the Tonks house was charming and cozy, and Ted welcomed Remus warmly at the front door when he arrived. Nice to see you again, Lupin, he said, extending his hand for Remus to shake it. Ted patted him on the shoulder as he walked inside. Glad you two are doing this. Dramata's been in a right funk lately. Come on in. They walked through a small living room that was littered with muggle fashion dolls whose hair, Remus noticed, had all been charmed different shades of bright rainbow colors. Where's? He paused for a second, trying to remember the kid's name. Nymphadora. School, Ted said, pushing a swinging door open and leading him into the kitchen. Figured she should go to muggle school until she gets her Hogwarts letter. How am I going to teach anyone maths and reading? Andromeda snorted from the kitchen table, where she'd spread out copies of the Daily Prophet amidst a pot of tea, a plate of biscuits, and two empty teacups. I had a goddamn governess when I was a kid. All I learned is how to say, pure blood, in twenty-three languages. You can read and write in ancient Greek, Ted said. Yeah, very useful, she snorted. T. Remus. Cheers, he said, sitting down across from her while Ted poured him a cup. Ted waved his wand and milk, sugar, and a plate of lemon slices floated from the counter and onto the table in front of him. I'll leave you to it, he said, 
kissing Andromeda on the top of her head and walking out of the room. Thanks, love, Andromeda replied without looking up from the newspaper in her hand. What are you reading? Remus asked. I've been saving all the newspapers from the last few months that mention my sisters or cousins, she said. I don't know why. It's just a form of self-flagellation at this point to read it all. But then I thought maybe there might be clues in some of the articles. Have there been? Remus asked, picking up one of the papers. Not that I can tell, she said. Here, check out yesterday's paper. There's a story about Narcissa's husband. She shuffled through the small stack of papers and pulled one out, sliding it across the table to Remus. The article was short, narrow, and buried deep inside the paper, nowhere near the front page, but he found it easily. Andromeda had circled the headline. Charges against ministry ambassador dismissed, in bright green ink. Lucius Malfoy, Ministry Ambassador to the Bulgarian Federation of Magic, has been cleared of all accusations of involvement with you-know-who following his testimony before a closed-door session of the Wizengamot. According to a statement from the Ministry of Magic, Mr. Malfoy presented compelling evidence of his being under the imperious curse to the Wizengamot. We feel confident that he will continue to be an asset to the Ministry and the Wizarding world at large. Mr. Malfoy lives in Wiltshire with his wife and son. He is a preeminent donor to St. Mungo's Hospital for Magical Maladies and Injuries and sits on the boards of governors for Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry and Azkaban Prison. That's it. Remus said, flipping the page as if expecting to find more of the article. That's it, Andromeda said, taking the newspaper back. Who'd he have to shag to get off that easy? Remus asked, half-joking, but Andromeda didn't seem to think it was so far-fetched. Shag, bribe, blackmail, Andromeda said. I wouldn't put anything past him. I actually heard that he traded information about the other Death Eaters to save himself. This revelation made Remus shiver, not at the thought of Malfoy selling out his comrades, but at the reminder of someone in the Order doing the same thing to Lily and James. And I've got some not-so-great news, Andromeda continued. After I saw you yesterday, I tried to find out how someone goes about visiting a prisoner in Azkaban and was told in no uncertain terms that I, in particular, would not be allowed in. Why not? They don't want another black family mastermind trying to plot Voldemort's return with her notorious sister and cousin, she said. But the blacks disowned you. You married a muggle-born. Remus exclaimed. Why would anyone stop trust? Remus, she said, shaking her head, with a pitying gaze. No one ever trusted me. Or Sirius. Not really. Why do you think they threw him in Azkaban without a trial? The name Black speaks for itself. Remus sighed. No matter what he or Sirius did, no matter how hard they fought, they'd always just be a werewolf and a Black. So, it'll be up to you, then, Andromeda continued. What'll be up to me? Remus asked. Finding a way to get into Azkaban, she said. I don't see why you wouldn't be allowed in. Remus's stomach flipped. Shit. She didn't know. Andromeda, he said, unsure of how to begin. The words, I'm a werewolf felt a little too much like a grenade.
I can't go to Azkaban. Why not, she said, her eyes wide and disbelieving. You said you'd do anything. You said. I want to, Remus cut her off. But I'm not allowed either. I already checked. Because I'm, because I was bitten. By Fenrir Greyback. On the full moon. When I was five. By Fenrir. Andromeda started to say but stopped. Remus watched the wheels turning in her mind and the truth break across her face as she figured out what he was saying. She gasped and raised her hands to cover her mouth. You mean, you're... Remus nodded. Andromeda dropped her hands, revealing her mouth, which was hanging agape. She just stared at him for a moment. And everyone knows. Everyone in the order, anyway, he said, holding his breath and waiting for the explosion. But it didn't come. Instead, Andromeda let out a low sigh. Damn, she breathed. When my cousin does it, he does it all the way. What? Remus asked, genuinely confused, especially when Andromeda started to laugh. Serious, she said. I ran off and married Ted, so he had to do me one better, didn't he? Went and fell head over heels in love with a half-blood bloke who's also a werewolf. I just fucking love him. Remus just stared at her, wide-eyed, but she reached across the table, squeezed his hand, and looked him straight in the eye. We're getting that kid out of prison. Remus and Andromeda needed information and decided that a simple approach was best. But sometimes the simplest things are the hardest to do, and Remus and Andromeda spent several hours composing a letter that was just nine words long. Dear Sissy, can we talk? Perhaps over tea. Andromeda. They decided against inviting Narcissa to Andromeda's house. They knew she'd declined that kind of invitation immediately. Narcissa would never deign to set foot in a muggle neighborhood, and besides, what they really wanted was to get inside Malfoy Manor. By leaving the suggestion of tea open and ambiguous, they'd increase the odds of Narcissa offering her own house for the meeting, if she accepted at all, which Andromeda acknowledged was a 50-50 proposition, perhaps thinking she'd have the upper hand with Andromeda on her own turf. They sent the owl off and waited. Several days passed. Each night, Remus dreamed of Sirius begging him to trust him forever, and each day he visited Andromeda's house where they spent hours comparing notes and debriefing. Andromeda relayed every bit of black family history and conflict that she thought might be relevant. Remus told her about the inner workings of the Order and what he knew about Sirius's role in it, which, he realized, now that he was saying it all out loud, wasn't much, including the intelligence that Voldemort wanted to kill James and Lily, and the Order's plan to use the Fidelius charm to protect them. So, they must have switched, Andromeda said softly to herself, as she took notes. They were compiling what Andromeda called the master dossier on information that might be relevant to helping Sirius. Or not used one at all. But that doesn't seem very likely. Hmm. Remus asked, looking up from an old photo of Bellatrix, Narcissa, Andromeda, Sirius, and Regulus. They were all wearing frilly, 
stiff-looking dress robes and posing for what was evidently supposed to be a very serious, formal portrait, except that Andromeda and Sirius kept poking each other and laughing wickedly, while the other three sent annoyed looks their way. Bellatrix appeared as though she was fighting every urge not to hex one of them. Their secret keeper, Andromeda said. If Voldemort knew where to find Lily and James, and were operating under the assumption that Sirius didn't give him that information, that means Sirius must not have been their secret keeper anymore. Right, Remus mused quietly. Of course, that's what it meant. He knew that, didn't he? He'd screamed that accusation right in Dumbledore's face not even three weeks ago. Did you watch them perform the Fidelius charm? No, I did not. Then you don't know shit. I wonder who they used instead, Andromeda said. Who they used instead? Remus wanted to slap himself. For some reason, the fog of grief, the enormous task of getting through his first full moon alone, the trial, or maybe just simple exhaustion, his mind hadn't made the mental leap that if Sirius wasn't the secret keeper then someone else must have been. He felt so foolish and ashamed of himself for not having come to that very simple conclusion on his own. He'd been so wrapped up wanting to prove Sirius innocent that he didn't give much thought to who might be guilty. Let's make a list, yeah. Andromeda asked, bending her head over the parchment, and raising her quill, waiting for Remus to talk. He cleared his throat and wiped his sweaty palms on his jeans. Yeah, um, well, he said, unsure of himself now. We know it's not Dumbledore. Or Moody. Or you, Andromeda said. Or Sirius. Who else knew about the plan? Again, Remus felt hot shame bubble in his stomach. The truth was, Remus hadn't really been privy to the plan, at least not outside of what little Sirius had told him about it. James and Lily were forced into hiding during the months Remus had been in and out of contact with the werewolves and most of the order meetings had continued without him. He wasn't even totally clear on how the Fidelius charm worked. Now that he thought about it, Remus hadn't heard any substantive details of the plan at all, just that it was happening and that his protestations about it didn't matter. Remus didn't like the idea of Sirius being secret keeper. Sirius put himself in the line of fire enough, but Sirius dismissed his fears with swift assurances that everything would be okay, and they didn't need to talk about it anymore. Even Remus's questions about Lily and James's safety during those months were brushed off rather quickly. They're fine. Nothing new. Nothing for you to worry about, Sirius would reassure him with a silencing kiss. We've got it all under control. What do you fancy for dinner? I'm not sure who else knew, Remus forced himself to admit out loud to Andromeda. Probably Peter, but... They were interrupted by a sharp knock at the window. Andromeda leapt up to let a beautiful and sleek eagle owl into the kitchen. It hopped onto the counter and stuck out its leg for her to untie a black envelope with silver embossed lettering. Remus hadn't realized that a bird could look haughty, but somehow this one did. When she finished removing the letter, Andromeda offered the owl a treat, but the bird only rearranged its feathers with a rather unnecessary flourish, let out an arrogant hoot, and flew out the window without looking back. Of course, Narcissa would have a bitchy bird, she shrugged, rolling her eyes, and flipped the black envelope over. 
It was tied closed with a black satin ribbon and had an ornate silver and green M emblazoned across the back. Andromeda opened the envelope and let out a snort. Holy shit, she actually sent an engraved invitation, she said, scanning the paper quickly and handing it to Remus. It was black and heavy with silver embossed lettering that read, An Invitation to Tea. Saturday, November 21st. 4 p.m. Malfoy Manor, Wiltshire. That's tomorrow, Remus said. I guess we're going to tea, Andromeda replied. Chapter 11, Malfoy Manor. November 21, 1981. The next day, Remus and Andromeda apparated to a quiet, wooded spot outside the village near Malfoy Manor. Ready? Andromeda asked Remus and he nodded. She tapped his head once and instantly he felt a trickle of cold drip down the crown of his head and the back of his neck. He shivered and watched his arms, hands, torso, legs, and feet slowly disappear as the disillusionment charm spread across his body. Andromeda had assured him that she was an expert at this spell, since she'd performed it on herself dozens of times before sneaking out of her parents' house as a teenager. Haven't lost my touch, she said appraisingly. She was looking straight toward where Remus stood, but her eyes only stared blankly. As far as she could see, he'd simply dissolved into the wooden fence and trees behind them. Remus wondered where James's invisibility cloak was. Was it still in the wreckage of the house in Godric's Hollow? Had anyone been back there to salvage any part of Lily and James's lives to give to Harry? If he knew Dumbledore, the answer was probably not. Unless something could be useful to the greater good in some way, it was insignificant. What did memories and mementos matter in war? Remus shook off these bitter feelings as best he could, even though they were creeping into his thoughts more and more often lately. He supposed that if anyone deserved to be bitter, it was him. But now was not the time to indulge himself. He needed to be fully present and aware if they were going to infiltrate Malfoy Manor. Andromeda straightened her robes and smoothed her hair, suddenly nervous. Do I look okay? she asked, fiddling needlessly with the lace cuffs of her sleeves. You look great, Remus said. Perfect. A true pure blood witch. Andromeda let out a tense, but grateful, laugh. She nodded. Thanks. Never thought I'd want to hear that, she said. Okay. Let's go. They emerged onto a quiet lane which wound through gently rolling green hills, past grazing sheep and low stone walls, until they reached a long gravel drive flanked by tall yew hedgerows that extended toward a stately manor home. Andromeda jerked her head toward Remus, signaling him to follow her down the drive. When they approached a pair of black wrought iron gates, Remus slowed his pace, but Andromeda simply raised a hand without breaking stride and the gates dissolved. They kept walking toward the large front door, past albino peacocks which strutted through formal, labyrinthine gardens. It was eerily quiet, save for the sound of tinkling fountains and the gravel crunching beneath their feet. Remus was careful to walk perfectly in step with Andromeda as they approached the house, even though they'd already tested the silencing spell he'd cast on himself, and his heart pounded in his throat. They climbed three wide stone steps to the house's huge mahogany front door, 
where Andromeda grasped a serpent-shaped doorknocker and knocked twice. The door swung open and at first, Remus thought no one was on the other side. Mistress Andromeda, a voice squeaked. Remus looked down at a tiny house elf clad only in a threadbare, but immaculately clean, tea towel holding the door open for them. He had bandages twisted around most of his fingers, a black eye, and a nasty-looking cut on his right cheek. Dobby is so happy to see you again. Hello Dobby, Andromeda said, stepping inside. Remus followed and although he was totally silent, he swore he saw Dobby's huge green eyes glance suspiciously up at him as the little elf closed the heavy door. I'm happy to see you too, Andromeda continued. She looked him up and down, clearly registering his injuries, but said nothing. Mistress is expecting you, Dobby said, bowing low and gesturing for Andromeda to follow him through the cavernous foyer which led into a large formal sitting room filled with deep green velvet settees, black leather wing chairs, and an ornate black marble coffee table. A fire roared in a huge hearth, making the chandelier above glitter with dancing light, but it didn't seem to make the room feel any less cold and unlived in. Dobby trotted out of the room and returned a minute later carrying an ornate silver tea service on a huge tray that teetered dangerously over his head. Remus didn't know how Dobby managed to carry it all. It looked like it weighed twice as much as he did. But he had made it across the room without incident and lowered the tray carefully onto the marble table. Mistress Andromeda is. But whatever Mistress Andromeda was, they never found out. Dobby, a crisp, cold voice echoed off the vaulted ceiling. Out. Narcissa snapped her fingers and jerked her head at the house elf as she entered the room, her heels clicking sharply against the polished wooden floor. Dobby let out a fearful squeak and scurried away. Remus hung back, quietly positioning himself between a shiny black grand piano and a floor-to-ceiling built-in bookcase as the sisters greeted each other with two brisk air kisses on each cheek. Andromeda, Narcissa nodded. You're looking well. You too, sissy, Andromeda said with a thin-lipped smile. Narcissa gestured stiffly to one of the black-winged chairs and Andromeda sat. Narcissa did, too. She perched at the very edge of her seat, her shoulders back and her chin in the air. She appraised her sister for a moment before asking in a clipped tone. T. Please, Andromeda nodded, and Narcissa flicked her fingers, making the silver teapot rise into the air and pour steaming liquid into one of the cups. Andromeda reached for it and smiled her thanks as Narcissa directed the pot to pour another cup for herself. Remus might have thought that the two women were strangers were it not for the heavy buzz of tension that hung in the air like static electricity needing to be discharged. Andromeda reached for a slice of lemon and Narcissa frowned slightly. I thought you took your tea with milk, she said suddenly. Sometimes I like it with lemon, Andromeda said with a small shrug. People change. That they do, Narcissa said, pursing her lips. Is Draco well? Andromeda asked. And Lucius? Let's skip the pleasantries, Narcissa said, stirring sugar into her own tea. Why did you want to see me? I was worried about you, Andromeda said. First Regulus, then Sirius, then Bellatrix. I wanted to make sure you were all right. 
If hearing Sirius's name triggered anything in Narcissa she didn't show it. Clearly, she wasn't as hot-headed as her Death Eater sister. If Bellatrix was fiend fire and wild rage, then Narcissa was ice and brittle restraint. I'm fine, she snapped, her face betraying no emotion. Sirius certainly had me fooled, Andromeda pressed on. I had no idea he was fighting for Voldemort. Narcissa's eye twitched. She swallowed. What do you want, Andromeda? she asked. Andromeda scratched her left temple. The signal, Remus thought. They were already moving to phase two of their plan. I have some family things I wanted to discuss with you now that we're the only two blacks left. First, I want to be written back into the inheritance, Andromeda said, and a look of annoyance mingled with relief flashed across Narcissa's face. That was Remus's cue. He slipped out of the sitting room and down a long hallway. He and Andromeda had agreed that if Narcissa didn't take the bait on Sirius that she'd start a series of very long and complex arguments while he searched the house. They weren't sure what he'd be looking for, exactly, but decided that Remus should try to find Lucius's study and look around. Remus walked down the hall, peeking first inside a formal dining room and then into a smaller sitting room. He was just about to turn a corner into another wing of the house when he found himself unable to move his legs. His feet felt as though they were cemented in place on the floor. He swiveled his head around, almost falling over, but caught his balance and saw the little house elf standing before him in an aggressive stance, a wooden rolling pin poised over his head like a weapon. Why is you sneaking around? Dobby hissed. Who is you? I'm not here to hurt you. Remus whispered back. He put his empty hands in the air. See? No wand. Why is you covered in the disillusionment charm? You can see me? Remus asked. Dobby nodded. How? Dobby's master and mistress ordered him to look out for intruders and spies, Dobby said. Of course. House elves must obey every order and have their own magic for doing so. Who is you? Dobby squeaked again. Is you a dark wizard? Is you a death eater? Remus contemplated lying but decided against it. No. I'm a friend of Andromeda's, he said, and to his surprise, saw the elf's face relax a little. You, you is not a death eater. No, he said. And won't hurt you. Or anyone. I swear. Remus's feet released from their prison. Dobby, Dobby does not like Death Eaters, Dobby said quietly. He stared at the floor for a moment, but then started violently hitting himself over the head with the rolling pin. Bad Dobby. Bad Dobby. Remus lunged for the elf and wrested the rolling pin from his tight grip. He held it above his head and out of Dobby's reach. Dobby slumped against the wall and slid to the floor, his head in his hands. Thank you, sir. You is kind, sir. Dobby looked up, a question blooming in his eyes. Who? Remus decided to answer. My name is Remus Lupin, he said, and Dobby gasped, his eyes widening. The werewolf, he breathed. Remus saw Dobby's eyes flick over the scars that slashed across his face and neck. Shit, Remus thought, 
but before he could come up with an answer, Dobby kept talking, unable to take his huge green eyes off Remus's face. But you is a hero, sir. Dobby whispered. You fought against he who must not be named and bad werewolves, and you tried to help the good werewolves. How do you? Dobby hears things, sir, he replied. You is revered among the meanest creatures, sir. They is seeing you as their champion. I, Remus, said, caught off guard. How could anyone know him? He pushed that aside and shook his head. Thank you. But I'm trying to help someone else now. Do you know the name Sirius Black? Dobby nodded yes but didn't speak. Has he ever been here? In this house? Dobby shook his head. Have you ever heard your master or mistress talk about him? Dobby nodded again, still not speaking. What did they say? Dobby's face contorted with effort. He started to rock back and forth, and his breathing became shallow. They is saying, they is saying. He said, before diving for the rolling pin, which Remus yanked back into the air. Okay, okay, you can't tell me, Remus hissed, trying to quiet the elf. Shush, it's fine. You don't have to tell me anything. But if. Dobby said, thinking carefully. If Remus Lupin just followed Dobby around, while Dobby cleaned Master's room. He stood stock still, eyeing Remus carefully. And you wouldn't have to tell me anything, Remus nodded. Master didn't say Dobby had to do anything to intruders, Dobby whispered, his eyes not leaving Remus's scarred face. He just told me to watch for them. Remus nodded. Lead the way, he said. Chapter 12, Hidden Dobby led Remus down the hall back towards the sitting room where Andromeda and Narcissa were arguing now. I have a child, too, Narcissa. I've researched the inheritance laws and I'm perfectly within my rights to. Uh-oh, Remus thought. Andromeda was already into the inheritance law portion of her argument. He knew that she had some arcane documents to show her sister but also knew that he didn't have much time left before Andromeda ran out of material. He followed Dobby down a small hallway lined with portraits of snoozing witches and wizards, many of whom had the same high cheekbones and patrician noses as Sirius and his cousins. He was wondering whether portraits, too, could somehow see past his disillusionment charm when he almost tripped over Dobby, who was now kneeling in the entryway of a small drawing room off the hall. Dobby waved a finger and a perfectly camouflaged trapdoor lifted silently on its hinges. He descended into the secret space in silence, giving Remus a meaningful jerk of his head as he did so. Remus followed, climbing down a small flight of roughly hewn stone steps into a pitch-black room that smelled of musty earth. Dobby snapped his fingers and a small ball of light appeared. It hovered over his outstretched palm until he made a motion like tossing the ball into the air and instantly the light burst into a large glittering orb that hung suspended above their heads. The room was cramped and claustrophobic, with a low stone ceiling and packed dirt floor, but before Remus could look around too much, Dobby crossed the room and pressed his hand to one of the grey stones in the wall. The stone wall slid soundlessly to the left revealing another dark room. Dobby directed the orb of light through the newly formed doorway. 
This room was also small but not empty. Instead, it was lined with dark shelves and bookcases, chests of drawers, and a huge wooden apothecary cabinet that extended across an entire tapestry-lined wall. As they stepped inside, Dobby made a great show out of cleaning what looked like a taxidermized two-headed snake with a long black feather duster that he'd conjured. Dobby must be careful not to touch anything, the elf said in an undertone, eyeing Remus with a warning look. Remus nodded and pulled out his wand as he walked through the terrible room. His eyes raked over poisonous-looking potions and ghoulish artifacts, a human skull with intricate runes carved above each eyebrow ridge, a glass vial on a gold chain filled with what looked like blood, a bronze pocket watch that ticked backwards, a small, silver dagger perched atop a black velvet cushion. Remus didn't know where to look first, but Dobby cleared his throat a little and started dusting a large, leather-bound book on one of the shelves a bit too aggressively than was really necessary. Remus nodded and Dobby stepped aside. Remus flicked his wand, wordlessly pulling the book from its spot without touching it and flicked his wand again. The book opened. Except it wasn't a book at all. It was a box filled with blank sheafs of parchment. He glanced up at Dobby, whose eyes widened meaningfully, as though willing Remus to understand something. Revelio, Remus whispered and instantly a dark, curling script bled to life onto the top piece of parchment. Remus's breath caught in his throat. Dobby let out a little squeak and started busying himself with the dusting again. Remus used his wand to lower the box gently to the floor. Wingardium Leviosa, he muttered, and the parchment lifted out of the box with a little scratch of movement. Remus hovered it in the air in front of his face and read. Name, Walden McNair. Age, 26. Residence, Alnwick, Northumberland. Blood status, pure blood. Occupation, Executioner, Committee for the Disposal of Dangerous Creatures, Ministry of Magic. Branded, March 1979. Status, alive, cleared of all charges. Special skills, herbology, human transfiguration. Notes, claimed to be under the imperious curse to avoid prison, paternal and a squib, involved in elimination of Dorcas Meadows. Remus's stomach squirmed at the mention of his friend Dorcas, who was Peter's ex-girlfriend, he remembered. He also remembered Walden McNair from Hogwarts. He'd been a few years older and ran with a rough crowd. Remus took a deep breath and pulled up the next piece of parchment in the pile. Name, Thorfinn Raoul. Age, 27. Residence, London. Blood status, half-blood. Occupation, Gringotts Curse Breaker. Branded, January 1978. Status, alive, cleared of all charges. Special skills, dueling, tracking and tracing. Notes, provided a false alibi for the night of Gideon and Fabian Pruitt's elimination, corroborated false alibi with Corban Yaxley. One by one, Remus read through the pieces of parchment. Name, Corban Yaxley. Age, 35. Residence, London. Blood status, half-blood. Occupation, assistant to the junior undersecretary of the Ministry of Magic. Branded, November 1977. Status, alive, cleared of all charges.
special skills, legitimacy, concealment. Notes, provided a false alibi for the night of Gideon and Fabian Pruitt's elimination, corroborated false alibi with Thorfinn Raoul. Branded. Did that mean with the dark mark? Remus could only guess. He continued. Name, Igor Karkaroff. Age, 39. Residence, Oslo, Norway. Blood status, pure blood. Occupation, Dark Arts Professor, Durmstrang Institute. Branded, July 7, 1974. Status, alive, traded information to be released from Azkaban. Special skills, Imperious Curse, Cruciatus Curse. Notes, traded Death Eater information with the ministry, suspected of fathering child with student at school, Inger Crumb, involved in elimination of Benji Fenwick. McNair, Raoul, Yaxley, Karkaroff. Each name was familiar to him, people that the Order of the Phoenix had kept tabs on as best they could and had suspected of being Death Eaters. But still, seeing this information in black and white was somehow still startling, especially seeing them alongside the names of people he knew. Marlene, Benji, Dorcas, Gid, and Fabe. It made Remus's skin grow hot and prickly. He pulled up the next sheet of parchment and had to stifle a cry. Name, Peter Pettigrew. Age, 21. Residence, Moreton in Marsh, Gloucestershire. Blood status, pure blood. Occupation, Port Key Office, Application Division, Ministry of Magic. Branded, March 1980. Status, missing, presumed dead by order of the Phoenix. Special skills, animagus, rat, unregistered. Notes, Potter's secret keeper, sister married a muggle and lives in America, involved in elimination of Marlene McKinnon. He looked up at Dobby who wasn't even pretending to clean anymore. He was simply staring at Remus with wide eyes that brimmed with tears. What is this? Remus breathed. Dobby didn't answer. Remus dropped his wand, which clattered to the floor, and felt his knees grow weak. The parchment with Peter's name on it fluttered out of the air and as it did, brushed the edge of Remus's elbow ever so slightly. Remus Lupin. Dobby gasped. Run. Because as Dobby spoke, an alarm that seemed to quiver and radiate off the very stones of the room, the floor, the ceiling began clanging through the entire house. Remus heard the scrape of heavy wood against the floor over his head and running footsteps that came closer and closer with every second. But what about? Go. Chapter 13 Escape Dobby had shouted, Go, but Remus didn't move. How could he leave the elf, already so bruised and battered, to whatever terrible fate now awaited him? Dobby seemed to realize what was going through Remus's mind, because he cleared the parchment and returned the book to its shelf with a single wave of his hand, grabbed Remus and his wand, and disapparated them both out of the hidden room. Remus and Dobby landed with a thud in the narrow, portrait-lined hallway outside the drawing room. Dobby kicked the trapdoor shut and apparated away. Remus jumped to his feet and looked down at his body. The disillusionment charm was still holding, but the silencing spell he'd cast on himself to quiet his footfalls seemed to have lifted. It didn't matter. 
The alarm was still sounding so loudly that he doubted anyone would hear him. Dobby is sorry mistress, Remus heard Dobby's shrill voice cry from another room. Dobby was cleaning master's room and accidentally touched the desk. Why would you be cleaning that room? Narcissa shouted. It's not the first of the month. Dobby, Dobby lost track of time, mistress, Dobby said. Dobby will punish himself, mistress. No, Narcissa said evenly. Master will handle your punishment. Narcissa. Remus heard Andromeda's voice interject loudly. He didn't hurt anything. Andromeda, Narcissa replied. This is a family matter. But I'm fam. Andromeda started, but her sister cut her off. You need to leave, Narcissa said, and for the first time, Remus heard something like emotion crackling in her voice, though which emotion he wasn't sure. I don't know why you really came here today, but you need to get out of this house before. Before Lucius gets home. Is he going to punish me, too? Andromeda said, her voice breaking a little. Sissy. Get out, Andromeda. Narcissa yelled. Remus heard a heavy bang. He made his way down the hallway and was now watching the two sisters squaring off on opposite sides of the sitting room while Dobby cowered on the floor between them. The huge front door had flown open, and Remus wondered whether Narcissa had made it happen on purpose or not. Andromeda didn't move. Her eyes flickered between Narcissa, Dobby, and the hallway where she knew Remus must be standing. She clearly didn't want to leave without him. But I... Don't make me hurt you, Narcissa said, her voice shaking. Get out now. Remus winced as Andromeda took a step away from the door and towards her sister, her hand outstretched tentatively. Narcissa put up a hand too, but not to take Andromeda's. Instead, Andromeda was knocked off her feet, thrown across the room and out the open door. Remus grabbed his chance, running to the door as Narcissa grabbed Dobby by the wrist and yanked him off the floor. The door started to swing shut and Remus leapt through it, landing hard on the stone steps outside just as the door slammed closed, rattling the snake doorknocker in a clatter of iron against wood. He looked around and saw Andromeda sprawled on the gravel drive, getting to her feet. He ran toward her as she started pacing. Shit, 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 she said under her breath again and again, running her hand through her hair and looking up at the house. Remus skidded to a stop in front of Andromeda, sending pieces of gravel flying into the air. He grabbed her by the shoulders, and she let out a little scream. It's me. Remus whispered. The alarm had finally been silenced and the unearthly quiet of Malfoy Manor returned. Andromeda grasped him back, grabbing his forearms. Remus, she breathed. Oh my god, I thought. No time, he replied. Let's go. He grabbed her by the hand, and they turned on the spot, leaving nothing but disturbed gravel and a couple of squawking peacocks behind them. They landed in Andromeda's back garden and stumbled away from each other as they struggled to maintain their footing after the hard landing. Fuck! Andromeda yelled, startling a flock of birds out of a nearby tree. They flew into the dying afternoon sunlight with a cacophony of fluttering wings. She kicked the ground, sending a clump of dirt into the air. Fuck!
Remus quickly tapped his head with his own wand and felt a tingly warmth spread across his body as the disillusionment charm lifted. He strode toward Andromeda, who had continued her pacing, and took her gently by the arm. Hey, hey, he said. Take a breath, we're okay. We're not okay, she cried. That went as badly as it could have gone. And Dobby. I know, Remus said, his heart filled with regret. I know. He felt Andromeda's muscles loosen a little beneath his fingers and he let go of her arm. She stood still, taking several slow, steadying breaths. Did you at least find anything? she asked, looking up at him. Remus nodded. I'll tell you inside, he said. Andromeda sunk into a kitchen chair and pressed the heels of her hands into her eyes while Remus busied himself with the kettle. His hands shook as he carried the teacups and saucers, which rattled against each other, betraying the sense of calm he was trying to convey. He felt the adrenaline from their escape seeping out of his muscles, leaving behind sharp pains that radiated through his body. He placed the teacups on the table with a clatter and poured tea into each, sloshing it onto the table. Andromeda put her own hand over one of Remus's trembling ones and looked up at him. Sit, she said. The tea can wait. He sat and she leaned over and wrapped her arms around his neck. It was such an unexpected gesture of trust and intimacy, that it startled Remus at first, but soon, he realized how good it felt to be held by someone who was sharing all the same feelings that he was. He moved his chair closer to hers and put his arms around her waist, pulling her in tighter. She sighed and rested her head on his chest. They stayed like that for a long time and Remus felt both of their heartbeats slow and their breathing steady. Finally, Andromeda lifted her head and gazed at Remus for a long moment, putting her hand to his cheek and smiling gently. I can see why he loves you so much, she said, her eyes filling with tears. Remus returned her smile and felt a lump rise in his throat. He couldn't speak, so he just nodded. A tear rolled down his cheek and Andromeda reached up to brush it away. Excuse me, she chided, though her own tears were spilling over now, too. Didn't I say no more crying? You started it, Remus said, and she laughed. You've got me there, she whispered and sighed heavily, a sigh that sounded like it had been building inside her for years. She wiped her cheeks with the backs of her hands and straightened up. Now that the tea is nice and cold, she said, the strength, and, Remus realized, the same practice sarcasm that Sirius used to shield himself from big feelings, returning to her voice. Tell me what you found. Chapter 14 the rat. A secret room in a secret room? I told you he was a supervillain, Andromeda said, shaking her head in disgust as Remus told her about his encounter with Dobby and the secret hiding places under Lucius's drawing room. There's more, Remus said, dreading saying the next part out loud. Lucius had, files or something. On other Death Eaters that managed to stay out of Azkaban. Stuff like their blood status and dirt on their crimes. Ugh, Andromeda said. Probably keeping that information handy in case he ever needs to trade it in for anything. What a steaming piece of shit. Yeah, Remus said, steadying himself. I only saw a few of them, but he had files on McNair, Raoul, 
Yaxley, Karkaroff, and, and Peter Pettigrew. Pettigrew. Andromeda repeated slowly. But that's. You asked me who else knew about the plan, Remus said quietly. And I said. Probably Peter, she finished for him. Lucius's paper said he was the secret keeper, Remus said dully. It said he was a half-blood, had a sister who married a muggle, was involved in Marlene McKinnon's death, and was secret keeper for Lily and James. Andromeda stared at him, wide-eyed, and put a hand to her throat. Oh Remus. I'm so sorry. Remus just nodded, his eyes drifting out of focus as a long-ago memory floated to the front of his brain. It was an image of Sirius, arrogant and handsome, yanking open the crimson velvet hangings around Peter's four-poster bed in the Gryffindor boys' dormitory, and laughing until he couldn't breathe. Good for you, Petey. Didn't think you had it in you. And suddenly, another image drifted into Remus's consciousness, this one conjured by his own imagination from pieces of Dumbledore's words and black and white photos in the Daily Prophet. Here, too, was Sirius, his face bloodied and bruised, his beautiful hair covered in dust and debris, standing at the edge of a crater in a cracked street, laughing as onlookers screamed and water shot into the air like some terrible fountain. Sirius's fingers curled manically through his hair, and he dropped to his knees, his laughter mingling with screaming tears and his blue-gray eyes becoming wide and unseeing with the cascading realizations of what he'd done. Rough hands. Ten, twelve of them, closed around his arms, his own screams danced and dissolved into those of the muggles around him, and everything went dark. Remus. Andromeda's voice broke through his thoughts. He snapped his eyes into focus and stared across the table at her. She looked afraid. Sorry, he said, shaking his head. Just, thinking. Peter. I can't believe it. Or maybe, maybe I can. I don't know what to believe anymore. Nothing seems real. I know. But it's actually a good thing. Andromeda said, sitting up in her seat and impatiently tapping Remus's knee with her hand. This means Sirius is definitely innocent. I know we knew that already. But now we can prove it. Remus just shook his head. How? I didn't take the parchment with me. Just touching it a little is what set the alarm off. And besides, anyone can write anything on a piece of paper. It doesn't make it true, Remus said. Yeah, but this morning we had no idea who the spy was. Now we do, Andromeda said. It's something. Ted and Andromeda insisted that Remus stay for dinner, and he was hesitant at first, afraid of being an intrusive presence on the little family. But he'd been living off saltines, peanut butter, whiskey, and cigarettes for weeks, and Andromeda has been threatening to tie him down and make him eat a real meal. You're wasting away, she fretted. As they settled around the kitchen table and tucked into Ted's famous steak and kidney pie, Remus slowly relaxed, or at least, what could pass for being relaxed these days. The warm food and comfortable laughter felt foreign but sweet, and he found himself holding back tears as he remembered the cozy family dinners he'd spent with James and his parents. He didn't say much, just listened, and watched Andromeda in awe. 
Just hours before, she'd been screaming, fuck, and kicking the ground in her back garden, and now, she was smiling gently at her daughter, who was regaling the family with a story of changing her hair from pink to purple to brown, all the while denying it to the muggle kids in the playground, telling them that they were crazy and needed to get their eyes checked. Andromeda looked exhausted, and dark circles had formed under her eyes, but she still listened to Nymphadora with rapt attention, gasping at all the right moments, laughing at her jokes, and asking incredulous questions at every pause in the story, as though she had all the energy in the world and the only thing that she needed to spend it on was her daughter. This, Remus thought, is what love looks like. After dinner, Ted and Andromeda offered Remus their guest bedroom for the night, but Remus shook his head. For the first time in a long time, he was looking forward to being home. He shook Ted's hand, ruffled Nymphadora's now blue hair, and hugged Andromeda, who stood on her tiptoes to give him a kiss on the cheek. Hell of a day, huh, she said. Hell of a day, he replied. He apparated into the back alley behind his flat and made his way slowly up the three flights of stairs. We should really move into a place with a lift, Remus thought, as pain pierced through his hips and knees with every step. He caught himself at the word, we. He hadn't allowed himself to think of a future where he and Sirius could embody that word together and was overwhelmed with a strange feeling of relief and profound sadness. Remus had never been an optimist, in fact, Sirius openly called him a pessimist, but he preferred the word realist. He knew from experience that there was no use in ever getting your hopes up only to have them crushed. Better to err on the side of caution and be pleasantly surprised at a positive outcome in any situation. But now, Andromeda was right. They had something to go on. He unlocked the flat door and although everything was as he'd left it that morning, it felt different somehow. He tossed his keys onto the entryway table, kicked off his boots, and walked into the bedroom. He still hadn't slept in the bed since Halloween night and had only entered the room to retrieve clothing. He looked at the bed in the yellow glow of the street lamp shining from outside. It looked strange and cold, as though it missed being slept in regularly. He sat down on Sirius's side of the bed and ran a hand across his pillow. He leaned over and smelled it, hoping to find Sirius's scent. It was faint, but still there. He pulled open the drawer of Sirius's nightstand and rifled through its contents. There was a pack of cigarettes, and a photo of Sirius and Remus at the beach, mid-laugh and staring into each other's eyes, totally unaware of the camera. Remus smiled remembering the day. Sirius had gotten a terrible sunburn and had draped himself across the couch dramatically as Remus applied a cooling potion to his bright pink shoulders. Remus looked into the drawer again. There was a photo of Sirius holding Harry high in the air as the baby giggled with delight at his godfather and another of Harry zooming around on a toy broomstick. Remus smiled at how excited Sirius had been to give Harry his very first broomstick, despite Remus's worries that he might be a little young for it. And there was a letter, opened but tucked carefully back into its envelope, addressed to Sirius in Lily's handwriting. Remus felt a surge of guilt. He shouldn't be looking through Sirius's things, especially his private letters. But he pulled out the paper and unfolded it anyway, his hands shaking. Dear Padfoot. His eyes filled with tears seeing Lily's lovely penmanship addressing Sirius with such easy familiarity.
he kept reading. Thank you, thank you, for Harry's birthday present. It was his favorite by far. One year old and already zooming along on a toy broomstick, he looked so pleased with himself, I'm enclosing a picture so you can see. You know it only rises about two feet off the ground, but he nearly killed the cat and he smashed a horrible vase petunia sent me for Christmas, no complaints there. Of course, James thought it was funny, says he's going to be a great Quidditch player, but we've had to pack away all the ornaments and make sure we don't take our eyes off him when he gets going. We had a very quiet birthday tea, just us and old Bothilda, who has always been sweet to us, and who dotes on Harry. We were so sorry you couldn't come, but the orders got to come first, and Harry's not old enough to know it's his birthday anyway. James is getting a bit frustrated shut up here, he tries not to show it but I can tell, also, Dumbledore's still got his invisibility cloak, so no chance of little excursions. If you could visit, it would cheer him up so much. Wormy was here last weekend, I thought he seemed down, but that was probably the news about the McKinnons, I cried all evening when I heard. Remus's heart nearly stopped as he reread the last line. Wormy was here last weekend. There it was, in black and white. He'd just risked his life sneaking into Malfoy Manor when the truth had been sitting in their flat all along. Peter knew their location. No one was supposed to know where Lily and James were hiding, yet in just two short paragraphs, Lily confirmed that at least three people did know, Bothilda, Sirius, and Peter. And that left one marauder who didn't know. Remus's stomach twisted at the realization of what this meant. They thought he was the spy. He curled onto the bed, pulled Sirius's pillow into his chest, and started to cry. He cried in a way that he hadn't been able to yet. Suddenly all his rage melted into what it had really been all along, overwhelming, bone-deep sadness. He pulled the blankets over his head like a child and heaved great shuddering breaths between sobs. Now, the smell of Sirius threatened to drown him, and he cried even harder. But then, something triggered in his brain, the memory of the last time someone cried desperate tears in this bed, and he thought of the dream that had haunted him every night for weeks, filled with Sirius's frantic pleas. There's nothing anyone could say, anyone, that could make me stop trusting you and loving you. Sirius said. I will always love you. There is nothing that will ever make me stop loving you. And Remus suddenly understood what Sirius was asking of him that night, forgiveness. Remus drifted into a restless sleep with his head buried in Sirius's pillow. His dreams flashed and faded in a series of confused images and sensations, Dobby's wide eyes, a silver dagger, swirling cigarette smoke, Lily's delicate handwriting, Bellatrix's deranged screams, Andromeda's small hand on his cheek. And then Andromeda's hand became Sirius's, but it was far away and Remus couldn't quite reach it. They were so far apart, their hands reaching for each other as though across a dark chasm. Remus stretched so hard that it was almost painful. Finally, their fingertips touched, and Sirius's blue-gray eyes blazed as he looked into Remus's. I'm so sorry Mooney, he whispered. I know, Remus whispered back. I'm coming for you. Remus woke, gasping and clammy with sweat. And, far away in a cell in Azkaban prison, so did Sirius Black. Chapter 15, 
In the Light of Day November 22, 1981 Remus woke the next morning with his arms curled around Sirius's pillow and a bright beam of sunlight shining in his face. He squinted and shielded his eyes. He could tell by the quality of light and the street noises outside that it was mid-morning. He rolled over to look at the clock. 10.15, he couldn't believe he'd slept so late. He felt well-rested for the first time in a long time. He swore never to sleep on the couch again if he could help it. He padded, barefoot, into the kitchen, opened the fridge, and leaned inside, even though he knew it would be empty. Andromeda was right. He had to start eating again. So, he grabbed his keys and a handful of the cash that he and Sirius kept in their shared dresser, and walked to the market across the street, loading up on eggs, bread, milk, tea, beans, sausages, and other essentials. He even bought a few apples, again thinking of Andromeda. She seemed to be the kind of person who'd think eating fruit was important. He threw a few candy bars into the shopping basket, too. Gotta stay true to myself, he thought, even if I am buying fruit. Back in the flat, he surveyed his newly full, ish, fridge and cabinets with satisfaction before making himself six scrambled eggs, five pieces of toast, three sausages, and a very strong pot of coffee. He hadn't realized how hungry he'd been until he wasn't hungry anymore. Maybe he'd even eat an apple later. After a shower, he turned to the steamy mirror and wiped it clean with his hand. He barely recognized the face that stared back at him in the dripping glass. Had he really not looked at himself properly in almost a month? His damp curls were falling over his eyes, which were sunken and dark, and his collarbones and cheekbones poked out of his scarred skin. Although he'd given his face a cursory buzz with an electric razor a few times, a beard was growing in, darkening the edges of his face even more. Sirius usually cut Remus's hair, though admittedly not very well, and had even once insisted on giving Remus a straight razor shave after seeing it done in a muggle movie. It was so sexy and intimate, with Sirius's hand grasping Remus's jaw and his warm breath on his exposed neck, that it had ended with the two of them pressed feverishly against the bathroom wall, the razor forgotten, Remus's face still covered in half a beard, and shaving cream in lots of unmentionable places. Remus sighed at the memory. What a relief to allow a little bit of happiness in. He let himself linger in it a bit longer before towel drying his hair, getting dressed, and settling in at the kitchen table with another cup of coffee and the notes he'd taken when Dumbledore first relayed what happened on October 31st and November 1st. He reread what he'd written down. Most of it still made sense but a few things now stood out to him. Sirius went to the potter's house around midnight. He spoke to Hagrid and gave him his motorbike, saying he wouldn't need it anymore. Why wouldn't he need it anymore? Sirius loved that wretched, deafening thing. Remus gasped. Noise, he realized. The motorbike was unbearably, obnoxiously loud, it was one of Sirius's favorite things about it, of course, and if Sirius was going to look for Peter, he couldn't announce his arrival on that roaring bike. Eyewitnesses said they heard Peter shout. Lily and James, Sirius, how could you? Fucking genius, Remus thought. Make sure everyone is watching and listening before you blast the street apart and frame your friend. Peter was gone. 
his finger was recovered. The entire wizarding world thought Peter was dead. Well, everyone except Lucius Malfoy, maybe. Hadn't his file on Peter said. Presumed dead by the Order of the Phoenix. Did that mean that he thought the Order was wrong? Remus ran his fingers through his hair, then looked at his hand. They found Peter's finger. But a finger isn't a body, Remus thought. Peter had supposedly been blasted to bits, but the terrible photo in the Daily Prophet didn't quite match that story. The street had been littered with bodies. The people were dead, but their bodies were very much intact. The explosion was enormous but didn't blow anyone else to pieces. And it was controlled enough that it barely touched Sirius. Peter could have easily blown off his own finger accidentally when he blasted Coventry Street apart. Or. Remus's stomach turned at the thought, he could have cut it off on purpose to lead a false trail. At first the idea seemed ridiculous. Who would have the stomach to cut off their own finger? But then again, who would have the stomach to turn over his best friends and their baby to someone who planned to kill them, frame his other best friend for the crime, and commit mass murder in broad daylight? Remus felt his stomach churn again and hoped the sausages stayed down. This, he thought. This is why he hadn't been eating. How could he eat when the truth made him sick? He took a sip of coffee, hoping it would settle his stomach, and kept thinking. It would have been easy, stupidly easy, in fact, for Peter to kill everyone in sight, transform into a rat during the tumult, and slip away totally unseen. Remus considered telling Dumbledore or the Ministry this information, but quickly decided against it. Telling anyone that Peter was an unregistered animagus would risk the possibility of someone finding out that Sirius was one, too. Sirius was already serving a life sentence in Azkaban. Who knows what else they'd do to him if they also knew about that bit of lawbreaking. Besides, Remus thought ruefully, Dumbledore and the Ministry wouldn't do anything about it anyhow, and they certainly couldn't be trusted. But there was someone who he did need to tell right away. Hey Remus, Andromeda said, opening the door to let him into her living room. When I got your Patronus saying you'd be here soon, I didn't think you meant in five minutes. I hope that's okay, Remus said, noticing that Andromeda was still in her dressing gown despite it now being mid-afternoon. Her hair was messy, and her eyes were still as exhausted as the night before. Of course, she said, twirling her dressing gown with a flourish. I just didn't want you to be startled by my dazzling beauty today. Rough night? Remus asked. How'd you guess, she smirked. You look good though. Is that color I see in your cheeks? Someone told me I should start eating more, he said. And I listened. Good. Want some coffee, she asked. I've already had about five cups, but what's a few more? Got anything stronger? Remus asked. I think we're gonna need it. Andromeda shrugged, walked into the kitchen, and pulled a bottle of fire whiskey off a high shelf. It's five o'clock somewhere, she said. Chapter 16, Pizza Party Late that evening. Are you sure this isn't the booze thinking for you? Ted asked warily after Andromeda filled him in on their new plan. Maybe it is, Teddy boy. Andromeda said, 
wagging a finger vaguely in her husband's direction and slurring slightly. She lifted the bottle of fire whiskey in the air like a trophy. Maybe it is. But I still think good old Mr. Ogden here has a spiffing plan. Ted gave Remus a, please help me, look. Luckily, Remus could hold his liquor much better than Andromeda. Another thing she and Sirius had in common. Total lightweights. I know how it sounds, Ted, Remus said. But I really think it'll work. Andromeda, you're someone's mother, Ted said. You can't keep tramping off on half-baked rescue missions. Don't worry, she's not coming, Remus assured him. But this was news to Andromeda. What? she protested loudly. No. We're in this together. We're Luke and Leia. We're Jekyll and Hyde. No. That's the same fucking guy, we're Sherlock and Watson. Well, sorry Sherlock, but... Ted said. Hey. Andromeda interrupted thickly, swaying a little. You don't get to call me Sherlock. Only he can call me Sherlock. She pointed at Remus and turned to him with unfocused eyes. Hey. Remus. Call me Sherlock, she whispered, placing her hands cartoonishly around her mouth, convinced it would keep Ted from hearing her. Ted just rolled his eyes. Okay, Sherlock, Remus said, barely suppressing a laugh and speaking slowly. But think about it. How do you think Mrs. Pettigrew would react if Sirius Black's cousin, the Sirius Black who she thinks viciously murdered her son, paid her a friendly little house call? Andromeda nodded solemnly and tapped her finger to the side of her temple. Elementary, my dear Watson, she agreed, conjuring a pipe, and sucking on the end. She took a long puff then perked up with what she evidently believed was an incredible idea. Maybe you can transfigure me into a bird, and I can ride in on your shoulder. I think it's time for you to go to bed, my love, Ted said, attempting to yank the bottle of fire whiskey out of Andromeda's grip. No, she cried. It's the pirate's life for me. Come on, Ted said. But Remus just got here, Andromeda whined, allowing herself to be pulled to her feet. In truth, though, Remus had been there for hours. They'd nearly polished off the fire whiskey and ordered three pizzas, Ted had a telephone in the house so he could call his parents, but Andromeda still didn't know how to use it, and Remus had a job convincing her that the muggle pizza shop would be very confused by an owl arriving at their door, which they ate inside a blanket fort they made with Nymphadora. They'd all fallen asleep on the heaps of pillows and cushions piled inside the fort, and Ted had to shake them awake when he got home from work. The needle was skipping on the clash record they'd been playing, and Ted lifted it off with a sigh. Trust my girls to fall into a peaceful sleep with punk rock blaring through the speakers, he said. After successfully putting them both to bed, Andromeda went only after convincing Ted to sing her a couple of verses of Odo the Hero as a lullaby, Ted came back into the living room to find Remus ruefully folding the blankets and vanishing the extra pillows they'd conjured for their fort. Remus suddenly felt very young and silly, cleaning up empty pizza boxes and a blanket fort in this responsible adult's house. Sorry, Ted, he said as Ted sank into the couch opposite him. Got a little carried away. But Ted only waved a tired hand. It's fine, he said. 
It's good, actually. Drum's been, she's not been herself since Sirius went away. And then Bella, on top of it. She tries to act sometimes like she doesn't care about her sisters, but she does. Always has. And Sirius, well, you know how she feels about him. Did you know she actually tried to adopt him when his parents disinherited him? Remus gaped. She did. Yep, Ted nodded. Had to be told three times by the ministry that a 21-year-old couldn't adopt a 15-year-old. Ted smiled and shook his head. That woman loves so hard. And for her to think that everyone she loved was, anyway. You've done her a world of good. Even if you did get her pissed in the middle of the afternoon. Remus smiled. His eyes traveled over Ted's lime-green robes with the St. Mungo's wand and bone insignia. You're a healer, then? Remus asked. That I am, he said. Work's been a lot less hectic now that you know who is gone. But it's still not easy. And it's definitely not over. There's so much damage still, I see it every day. So many people who'll never recover from what he and his Death Eaters did to them. Remus nodded. I might be one of them, he thought. I saw Frank and Alice Longbottom tonight, Ted said quietly, looking at his hands. They were being moved to a long-term residential floor. You mean, Remus said slowly. To live. Yeah, Ted nodded sadly. It's a ward for permanent spell damage. The healers did everything they could, but... His voice trailed off and he was quiet a moment before he continued. It's nice, Ted said, trying and failing to sound optimistic. Cozy. There's a sitting room and a tea room and musicians that come every Friday. Ongoing therapy. No limit to how many visitors they can have or when they can have them. But they'll never get better. Their brains are, they're permanently destroyed. They don't even recognize their son or each other. They can't feed themselves. They can't speak. I haven't told Andromeda how bad off they are, and I don't think I ever will, if I can avoid it. I'm sorry, Remus said. Fucking Bellatrix, Ted said. Evil. It's the only word for what she did to them. And Andromeda still went to that trial. Still thought she could somehow save her sister's soul. But what she doesn't understand is that Bellatrix doesn't have a soul. You can't have one to do what she did. Ted fixed Remus with a hard stare. Remus swallowed. Are you positive that Sirius is innocent? Ted asked, his eyes not leaving Remus's face. His voice was low and dangerous. Remus's mind flashed through a decade of memories in half a second, to Sirius teaching him how to read, to the prank that almost killed him and Snape, to Padfoot licking his wounds after a particularly painful full moon, to Sirius's evasiveness about the plan to protect Lily and James, to Sirius's eyes, the feeling of his hands on Remus's back, the smell of him, the heat of his skin, the taste of his lips, to the moon and the brightest star in the sky, always constant, always glowing next to each other, even when clouds hide them. Remus looked back at Ted and answered in a firm, clear voice. Yes. Chapter 17, Mrs. Pettigrew. November 23rd.
Ted was very against drinking and apparating, and Remus knew he was drunker than he felt, so when Ted offered the guest bedroom for a second night in a row, Remus took it. He woke up the next morning with a dry mouth and a dull headache, but his discomfort was nothing next to Andromeda's. He found her face down at the kitchen table, still wearing the same pajamas she never changed out of the day before and her arms hanging limply by her sides. Morning, he said. Andromeda raised one arm in a pathetic wave and just grunted at him. Ted plunked a steaming mug of bubbling, snot-green potion in front of his wife's head and shook her by the shoulder. Drink up, buttercup, he said. Andromeda sat up slightly, sniffed the concoction, and made a face. Ugh, please don't make me drink that, she said, opening one eye to look at Ted. Suit yourself, he said. But don't expect me to hold your hair back when you're hugging the toilet later. Fine, she said, holding her nose and knocking it back in several uncomfortable gulps. What is it? Remus asked, watching Andromeda shudder as she swallowed the last of it. Hair of the dog, Ted said as he pulled bread and beans out of the cupboard. More fire whiskey? Remus asked. Although he was intimately familiar with taking a morning shot to get through breakfast after a particularly debauched night, it had been the marauder's preferred hangover remedy, it didn't seem like Ted's style. No, Ted laughed. It's a hangover potion that uses dog hair as a key ingredient. It's where muggles get the expression from, actually. Not that they know that. Need some? Remus shook his head. What he really needed was a cigarette, so he excused himself to the back porch. Got another? I'll trade you. Andromeda had joined him on the porch carrying two cups of coffee. She offered one to Remus with a nod toward the glowing cigarette. He took the coffee and squeezed the cigarette between his lips to free up his other hand and reached in his back pocket for the pack. He shook a cigarette free and offered it to Andromeda, who already looked perkier and less green around the edges than she had a few minutes before. Cheers, she said, leaning close to Remus to light her cigarette off the end of his, which was still squeezed between his lips. I didn't know you smoked, he said, exhaling smoke rings into the sky. I don't, she said. But sometimes you just need it, you know. That I do, he agreed. I said I'd quit when the war was over but. He held up the cigarette with a futile wave of his hand. Yeah, well, I said I'd never smoke again after Dora was born, Andromeda replied, inhaling deeply and closing her eyes. But I also never thought I'd be trying to get my cousin out of Azkaban. Not for murder, anyway. But I guess life surprises you. Listen, about visiting Peter's mother, Remus started, but Andromeda shook her head. I'm sorry about last night, she said. I was so fucking obnoxious, and I totally agree that I shouldn't go. Not even as a bird? Remus asked. Andromeda covered her eyes with her hands. Oh my god. I really said that, didn't I? You also made me call you Sherlock, he laughed, feeling relieved that she was no longer insisting on coming. She took a drag of her cigarette and pointed it toward him. That one I stand by, she said. They agreed that Remus should try to visit Mrs. Pettigrew sooner rather than later, giving them plenty of time to make the polyjuice potion, 
so after breakfast, Remus sent her an owl asking if he could stop by. He thought inviting himself over to Mrs. Pettigrew's house was kind of presumptuous, he'd barely even spoken to her over the years beyond saying, hello, goodbye, and happy Christmas. She didn't exactly radiate the same warm fuzziness that Euphemia Potter did. So, he was very surprised to see Andromeda's owl perched on the windowsill of his flat with her reply tied hastily to its leg when he arrived home less than an hour later. Remus, my dear, the letter said. I would love a visit. Thank you. Can you come for tea at three o'clock tomorrow? Tomorrow. His stomach jumped at the word. While he was relieved that their plan was coming together so quickly, he had expected a little more time to mentally prepare for seeing Peter's mother. But he sent his reply. See you then, straight away and sent a Patronus to Andromeda telling her he was going sooner than they originally thought. Remus and Andromeda had decided the night before that they needed to talk to Sirius and had to find a way to do it, with or without ministry approval. Remus wanted to see Sirius for a million reasons, of course, but now that they knew that Peter had been the spy, the need to talk to him was more urgent than it had ever been. Sirius was the last known person to see Peter Pettigrew in his human form, at least, the last person who hadn't had their memory wiped, and was the only person who knew what really happened. Remus and Andromeda ran through a list of people who might be allowed to visit him, Dumbledore, certainly. Moody, maybe. But there was no one they could trust to do it for them. What about Peter's mother? Andromeda said. I don't know if that would be a very convincing disguise, Remus said. Why would Peter's mother want to visit the person she thinks murdered her son? Because she thinks that he murdered her son, Andromeda said. Motherhood is strange. Trust me. So, they settled on Peter's mother. Remus had never taken Polyjuice Potion before and sure as hell couldn't brew it himself and neither could Andromeda. But Ted could, and Andromeda promised to pick up all the ingredients, including flux weed that had been gathered at the full moon. It costs a bit more, but they do sell it, and it's a lot faster and easier than waiting until winter is over and picking it ourselves, she said, waving off Remus when he protested the high cost. I know my uncle Alfie would have wanted me to spend his money on getting our boy out of prison, she assured him. Ted didn't know of any werewolves who'd taken Polyjuice Potion before but was 99% sure that Remus's lycanthropy wouldn't impact the potion's efficacy or hurt Remus in any way. As long as you don't take it after you've transformed, you should be fine, he mused. Should be fine. 99% sure. Andromeda said. Remus. Let me take it. Remus refused, but it wasn't only gallantry that made him insist on taking the potion himself. His need to see Sirius was gnawing at him harder than ever. Ted, of course, also insisted that Remus be the one to take the potion and sneak into Azkaban. Outvoted, Andromeda shrugged grumpily. That left Remus tasked with getting the last ingredient, a piece of Mrs. Pettigrew herself. He arrived at Mrs. Pettigrew's doorstep with a fresh haircut, courtesy of Andromeda, and a bouquet of flowers. Instead of wearing his usual slouchy muggle corduroys and sweater, Andromeda dressed him smartly in a set of Ted's robes and had charmed the scuffs out of his shoes. 
She'd even cast a glamour spell over his face and hands to soften the appearance of his many scars. Why my hands? he asked, examining the strange lack of calluses and scrapes there. Ugh, it's an old pure blood thing, Andromeda said. It's an insult to say someone has hands like a house elf. She looked at him admiringly. You clean up nice. When he left, Remus scarcely recognized himself. He felt almost posh and couldn't say he liked it very much. But if that's what it took to kiss up to Mrs. Pettigrew, that's what he'd do. Remus had visited Moriton in Marsh countless times to see the Potters but had only visited the Pettigrew house once during the summer after fifth year when he, James, and Sirius demanded that Peter stop sulking about his owl results and get out of the damn house. The modest cottage looked just the same as it had then, with its thatched roof, gold-hued bricks, and climbing vines that crept across the façade and over the doorway. Mrs. Pettigrew, though, looked very different when she appeared at the door. She looked old. So much older than the last time he saw her, although it had only been five years since their last meeting. Her hair was pulled into a messy, wiry gray braid that wound around the crown of her head and her skin hung limply on her arms and legs, as though she'd very recently lost a lot of weight, which Remus realized she probably had. Not that Remus had known her very well before. She always kept to herself, rarely accepting invitations to the potter's house, even though Fleamont and Euphemia extended them all the time. She certainly never invited the boys to her house. Remus remembered thinking that if Mrs. Pettigrew had been a muggle, she'd be the type to cover her furniture and lampshades with plastic covers. The house felt quiet and tense that day they tried to goad Peter out of his bedroom, and although it was much smaller than the potter's house, it wasn't cozy. It had none of that easy, welcoming warmth that the potter's home had, nor was it the kind of house where teenagers were welcome to flop on the couch and scrounge around for snacks. Remus, Mrs. Pettigrew said quietly when she opened the door to greet him. She was a tiny woman, and almost had to crane her neck to see Remus's face. She was wearing a faded cornflower blue dress and fuzzy house slippers. She did not hug Remus or shake his hand, but instead looked at him tentatively with her arms partly extended, unsure how to greet this person who she'd barely known as a boy and certainly didn't know as a man. Hello, Mrs. Pettigrew, Remus said, handing her the flowers to relieve the awkwardness. These are for you. She thanked him for the flowers and beckoned him inside. How sweet of you to bring me flowers, she said. Peter brought flowers every time he visited after he left Hogwarts. This statement struck Remus as odd. As far as Remus knew, Peter had lived at home with his mother in the years after leaving Hogwarts. But he just nodded and stepped inside. Mrs. Pettigrew led him into a small sitting room where she'd already set up tea and biscuits. When he sipped the tea, he found that it was cold, as though she'd put it out hours before. The idea of her anticipating his arrival enough to have the tea ready for so long struck him as impossibly sad. Mrs. Pettigrew was a widow, her daughter lived in America, and as far as she knew, her son was dead, murdered by one friend while trying to protect another. She must be so lonely, Remus thought, and suddenly felt very guilty for attempting to trick her. I'm so happy you came to see me, Remus, she said. I'm very sorry, Mrs. Pettigrew, he replied. For what happened? 
Thank you, she said. It's your loss, too, of course. Remus nodded. I know how much you admired Peter, she continued. He did so much for you. Remus almost choked on his cold tea. Oh, was all he could manage through the coughing, but Mrs. Pettigrew only smiled at him fondly. Peter told me about your life with the muggles in the orphanage, she said. How he helped you with school and learning to read, lending you money when you needed it. How he asked for you to be prefect instead of him to prove that half-bloods were just as talented as pure-bloods. He told me how much that meant to you. When Remus didn't reply, Mrs. Pettigrew continued. Oh, I hope you don't mind that he told me all of that, she said in a dramatic whisper. He never told me until recently. Not when you were in school. I, no. I don't mind, Remus said, shaking his head and smiling reassuringly. He um, he did help me a lot. Mrs. Pettigrew nodded and looked Remus up and down, taking in everything from his hair to his hands to his shoes. I can see that, she said. Andromeda was right, he thought. Appearances would matter to this woman. The afternoon continued in much the same way, with Mrs. Pettigrew regaling Remus with stories about Peter that he was quite sure never happened. At least she has some comfort, he thought to himself, even as he struggled to listen to things like how Peter trained James day and night before his final Quidditch match and mentored first years who were afraid of being away from home for the first time. And you said he never told you any of this while he was at Hogwarts? Remus asked finally. He was so modest, Mrs. Pettigrew said. And to think I was so hard on him over silly things like owls and newts while he was at school. He even worried about Sirius Black. She started to cry softly into an embroidered handkerchief that she pulled from her dress pocket. Remus wrestled the conflicted emotions that rose in his chest at the mention of Sirius. He needed to hear what she was talking about but feared that he wouldn't be able to control his anger if he did. He took a deep, steadying breath and forced himself to be calm. Worried? Remus asked. About Sirius? Yes, she said tearfully. Peter knew he was getting involved with you-know-who. He told me just a few weeks before, before he. Her quiet tears became a wail. Remus felt sick at how thoroughly Peter had covered his tracks. Peter died a hero, Remus choked out, and to his relief Mrs. Pettigrew's crying calmed a bit. He did, she agreed. Would you like to see his order of Merlin? When Remus had finally extricated himself from Mrs. Pettigrew's house, night had fallen, and he felt as emotionally exhausted as he did the morning after the full moon. He'd endured a tour of Peter's childhood bedroom, which had become a shrine, a stack of photo albums chronicling every moment of Peter's childhood, and more stories about Peter, the hero. Remus shoved his hands into his pockets as he walked to a dark, quiet spot to apparate, and the only thing that kept him from wanting to punch something or throw up was the large clump of wiry gray hair that he'd pulled from Mrs. Pettigrew's hairbrush in the bathroom. Chapter 18, The Wait November 23 to December 23, 1981 There were only a few things Remus remembered from Slughorn's lesson about brewing polyjuice potion, that it was tricky to get right, that its ingredients were finicky, and that it took about a month to make. The words, tricky, finicky, 
and month made Remus's brain shut off, and he tuned out Slughorn's lecture immediately. Why listen to tips and tricks for brewing a potion that he would never, ever make, when he had much more important arithmancy reading to do? He'd just memorized the ingredients and the steps long enough to pass the written exam and never think about this stupid concoction again. That was in seventh year. Now, he wished he'd paid a little more attention in class that day. He couldn't decide whether he wanted time to slow down or speed up during those weeks between seeing Mrs. Pettigrew and when the potion would be ready. He felt at once that they had nothing to do and way too much to do over the next four weeks. They needed to confirm that the only humans in Azkaban were the prisoners and that Dementors were the only guards. Apply for Mrs. Pettigrew to visit Sirius, which apparently, they could do by owl post with nothing more than a short, visit request form, fucking discriminatory bastards, Andromeda said. Arrange for transportation to Azkaban via one of the boats that made daily deliveries of food, mail, and supplies to the island. They each had their own tasks to accomplish, too. Andromeda needed to brush up on her ancient Greek, Remus had to get through the next full moon, and Ted of course, had to brew the polyjuice potion. And don't forget the Christmas tree. Nymphadora said. Remus had wished more than once since leaving school that he had access to the Hogwarts library, but now it seemed more important than ever. When he voiced this wish out loud to Andromeda, she looked at him with a quizzical smile. You don't think Hogwarts has the only library in Wizarding Britain, do you? she asked, and within minutes she was bundling Nymphadora in a hat, coat, and mittens, grabbing Remus by the wrist and throwing a handful of glittering green fluke powder into the fireplace. They spun past a whirring series of hot and sooty grates, landing in a huge stone fireplace. They were in an ancient-looking library where a gothic-style vaulted ceiling soared over their heads and heavy oak bookshelves extended down long rows on both sides of a central reading area lined with wooden desks. Remus gazed upwards and saw what looked like the same rows of shelves on either side of the balconies above. The air was heavy with hushed magic and the smell of wood, leather, and old parchment. He poked his head down one of the lantern-lit rows and couldn't see the end of it. It simply stretched on and on into darkness. Where are we? he whispered. Manchester, Andromeda replied. Care to be more specific? Remus asked cocking an eyebrow. Nymphadora's mittened hand grabbed one of his and attempted to pull him down the nearest aisle. I want to find the books on vampires, mummy. Nymphadora said loudly, causing a few annoyed faces to look up from their books and scowl at the little girl. Can Remus come with me? Shh, love, people are trying to study, Andromeda told Nymphadora before answering Remus. We're at the Mithras Athenaeum. It's about five miles underground beneath Chetham's library, which the Muggles are impressed with because it's the oldest library in Britain. But this one's about one thousand years older and a lot bigger. Remus thought he could spend all day, every day among the stacks at the Mithras Athenaeum, which surely held more books than one person could possibly read in ten lifetimes. But they were there for a reason, and his exploring would have to wait. Watch this, Andromeda said. She pulled out her wand and laid it flat on her palm. She whispered. Azkaban Prison. 
Her wand tip glowed green and tilted upward so that it was standing straight up on its end. Guess it's upstairs, she said. Getting a library card enables your wand to point you toward the books you're looking for. Green means go, red means stop. They entered an old-fashioned birdcage-style lift that moved slowly upward until Andromeda's wand tip turned red and swung back down, pointing straight ahead and lying flat on her palm. The lift doors clattered open, and the wand tip turned green. They exited the lift and the wand swiveled to the left. Remus made a mental note to get himself a library card before leaving. They found an entire section about Azkaban and Remus had to hold back tears reading about the terrible place. He looked up at Andromeda and saw that she, too, was crying. I know, was all she could say. They were decidedly less energetic on the way home from the library, but at least found out that there were no other humans at Azkaban besides the prisoners. That fact was extremely important to their plan. Finding books about Azkaban wasn't the only thing that was easier than Remus thought it would be. The more time he spent with Andromeda and Ted the more he realized how little he knew about the wider wizarding world. He'd only been around other wizards at school or during wartime. He hadn't ever had a chance to just exist. Have you heard of Wolfsbane Potion? Ted asked Remus a couple of days before the December full moon. Remus was playing chess with Dora while Andromeda struggled to write a letter in ancient Greek. She kept tapping her wand on the parchment to check for errors and cursing under her breath as she turned again to her thick translation book. Wolfsbane. Remus repeated, not looking up at Ted but instead wincing as Dora's knight clobbered one of his rooks with the butt of her sword. No, I don't think so. It's for lycanthropy, Ted said, making Remus look up. It's pretty new, we've only just started trying it out at the hospital, but they've had good results with it so far. What does it do? Remus asked. Dora's chess pieces were now decimating his own, which were making rude gestures at Remus for abandoning them during their time of need. It makes the transformations easier on the subject, Ted said. And renders the wolf totally harmless to humans. Are you kidding? It sounds incredible. It really is, Ted said excitedly. But it's expensive, hard to make, and has to be drunk within an hour of brewing, which means providing specialized training to the master potioneers at St. Mungo's and investing in all the ingredients and supplies every month. Marlene McKinnon was raising money to start a full moon clinic for anyone who needed it, free of charge, but I'm afraid anti-werewolf sentiment has been especially strong lately, now that you know who is gone, and the idea kind of died with her. Remus's heart dropped at the mention of Marlene, and Ted seemed to read his face. I'm sorry, he said. I know she was a friend of yours. Drum told me about her family and, and Peter. Remus just nodded, a lump rising in his throat. Marlene was a hero, his hero, for everything she'd done for him after all those full moons. Of course she would have wanted to start a free Wolfsbane clinic. She was so fierce and smart, so determined to make life better for his kind. And she would have done it, too. There's nothing that could have stopped her. Nothing except. Anyhow, Ted continued. Even though we never got the clinic off the ground, we still have a handful of people coming in each full moon to take the potion and spend the night in one of our safe rooms. 
want to give it a try. Remus found that the transformation using Wolfsbane potion was much less painful than usual and that he even retained his human mind and memory throughout the night. But being aware of himself seemed somehow lonelier, and the wolf whimpered and shivered alone on the bed without Padfoot's warm body curled up next to him. The next morning, Remus's joint still ached, but not as badly as usual, and he had no new cuts, bites, or scratches on his skin. He slowly got dressed and was sitting on the edge of the bed with his shoes on when Ted knocked on the door at sunrise. Ted was wearing his Muggle Street clothes, rather than his healer robes, and wasn't alone. Andromeda was with him, and she was holding a mug of something that smelled like hot chocolate. Here you go, she said, handing the mug to Remus. Something Ted's been working on. The drink was thick, spicy, and sweet and tasted of bitter chocolate, cayenne pepper, and something else Remus couldn't quite put his finger on. Lavender, Ted told him when he asked. Remus took another sip and felt a warm, relaxing sensation pulse through his whole body, at once calming him down and perking him up. Thanks, Remus said. Not working today. Nope, Ted replied. Just thought you could use a couple of familiar faces. Remus nodded and again, felt his eyes prickle. God, he thought, what was worse, being so angry you make picture frames explode off the walls or dissolving into tears every minute. In truth, though, Remus felt incredibly grateful to Andromeda and Ted and wondered if he'd ever find a way to repay them after all this was over. He knew that Andromeda wanted to rescue Sirius almost as much as he did, but still. They didn't have to take him in like the wounded orphan that he was. The next few weeks passed in much the same way, with Remus researching Azkaban, Dementors, and ocean currents in the North Sea, Ted working at St. Mungo's and tending to the Polyjuice Potion, and Andromeda taking care of the logistical details of their visit. Then, two nights before Christmas when Andromeda, Nymphadora, and Remus were hanging red, gold, and green baubles on the Christmas tree in the Tonks's living room, Ted burst in from the study with an insane grin on his face. It's ready. Chapter 19, Azkaban Prison Christmas Eve, 1981 The wind whipped the fabric of Remus's dress, twisting it around his legs as the boat pushed through the churning ocean, away from mainland Scotland and toward the slate-gray horizon. White-capped waves sent a biting sea spray into Remus's face, but he clung to the ship's railing anyhow, afraid he'd lose his footing or be sick without his hands wrapped around the cold metal. Name, ma'am, a pock-skinned crewman with a mouthful of missing teeth approached him with a clipboard, but Remus didn't turn around. He was staring at the dark line where the sky touched the sea, thinking about what lay just beyond it. Ma'am, the voice asked again, and this time Remus realized the crewman was talking to him. Oh, he said in a small voice that felt strangely high-pitched in his throat. Um, Pauline Pettigrew. The crew member checked her name off his list. I'll be needing to search your bag, he said in a thick highland brogue. Remus nodded and handed over the blue-patterned carpet bag that Andromeda picked up in a muggle second-hand shop. They'd filled it with what they imagined to be old lady things, a couple of handkerchiefs, tea bags, hard candies, hoping that the letter would stay hidden, just in case the concealment spell didn't work. 
but the crewman's hand emerged with the piece of parchment and Remus's heart pounded harder. The crewman unfolded the parchment and scanned the letter. When he looked back up at the old lady standing in front of him, his expression was filled with pity and anger. What are you, some kind of martyr, he asked, handing the letter back to her. He don't deserve it. The man walked off. Remus looked down at the letter, and his wild heartbeat slowed. Dear Sirius. I don't know why you killed my son, but I hope you find peace. Sincerely. Pauline Pettigrew. The rules for visiting Azkaban prison were heartless, cold, and unyielding. For one, you were at the mercy of the supply delivery boat. No one, not even the Minister of Magic herself, could apparate onto the island. Visitors entered alone and a Dementor escorted them to the cell of whoever they were there to see. Although the Dementors could not harm visitors, they made regular rounds through the cell blocks, making private conversations tricky. Visitors could stay for one hour. When the boat left, they had better be on it. Otherwise, they'd find out exactly what it was like to spend the night in Azkaban, and any rules the Dementors followed for leaving them alone no longer applied. Perhaps worst of all, though, was the wand rule. Unless you worked for the ministry, everyone who entered the prison had to leave their wand in a lockbox on the boat. Despite their orders not to attack visitors, Dementors still sucked the happiness out of people whether they actively tried to or not, which meant that the no-wand rule was incredibly dangerous. Confiscating wands was more than just a security measure. Rendering visitors powerless to cast a Patronus was a good way to make sure they never came back. Remus was terrified, but he'd learned more than he ever wanted to about Dementors over the past four weeks, including the fact that a corporeal Patronus wasn't the only way to protect yourself from them. There was also something called talismanic love. It couldn't be bottled or brewed, commanded by an incantation, or magically hidden in an object. It was simply a powerful, protective charm that lived inside someone who felt a deep love for another person. Although it could be called upon at moments of great need or personal sacrifice, the spellcaster was typically unaware that they were doing it. It just exploded out of them when it was needed. That meant it was hard to control and direct, and Remus hoped that the love he felt for Sirius would be enough. He also learned another very important bit of information about Dementors, they couldn't fully detect the presence of animals the way they could detect humans. It was two hours into the journey before Remus's eyes began to distinguish interruptions in the straight line of the horizon, where tiny dots were now forming. He knew the boat was enchanted to move faster than a muggle vessel, but he was still startled at how quickly the dots blossomed and grew as they approached. For all its rugged remoteness, the maps at the Mithras Athenaeum revealed that Azkaban's island was actually part of a desolate, uninhabited archipelago that was unplotted on Muggle maps. There was another tiny island located about half a mile away from Azkaban, and as far as Remus and Andromeda were aware, it didn't have any of the same protective charms preventing people from apparating on and off it. Azkaban Fortress rose like a towering tombstone before Remus's eyes and the boat bumped into the mooring with a jolt. The crewmen quickly twisted ropes around metal cleats and lowered a gangway from the deck. They opened the boat's cabin door and Remus jumped back as a stream of rats scurried from below deck, down the gangway and onto the island, where they ran into the shelter of the fortress and out of sight. 
Remus's stomach churned knowing that the rats had helped themselves to the food supply, but the crewmen just ignored them, as they carried wooden crates off the boat. Remus handed over his wand to a crewman and followed the others down the gangway. That way, one of the crewmen gestured to him and two other visitors, a heavily pregnant woman and a grizzled old man whose hands were covered in tattoos. All three visitors turned to see three dementors looming in the shadowy doorway. One for each of them. Entering the torchlit prison was like being sucked into a black hole which devoured any sensation from the outside world, blotting out the sound of the ocean crashing against the rocks, the screeching gulls, and any bit of sunlight that managed to push through the grey clouds. Instead, they were left with darkness and rough stone walls, the skittering rats below their feet, freezing air, and the occasional shriek of pain or despair ringing mercilessly through the prison. But most of all they were surrounded by the choking, eye-watering smell, sharp, acrid urine, iron-rich blood, mold and sweet rot. It was heavy and thick, hanging in the air as though it could be touched. One by one the Dementors led their visitors down different cell blocks until Remus was alone with his dark sentry. They slowed in front of what looked like an empty cell and Remus felt anguish and misery sink in his chest like a stone as the Dementor turned its blank face toward him and gestured a scabbed hand to the bars before gliding away on its regular rounds throughout the cell block. The first thing Remus noticed was the bowl of lumpy grey gruel and a crust of bread, its edges blue with mold, sitting untouched on the cell floor. He raked his eyes across the tiny, dimly lit space for signs of Sirius, but only saw a wash basin, a spindly wooden chair, a chamber pot, and a thin mattress on a concrete bed frame. A grey lump lay atop the mattress and as Remus's eyes adjusted to the dark, he saw that the lump was moving up and down with ragged breaths. Remus's heart thrummed in his throat, and he tried to swallow but his mouth was too dry. Serious black, he said, and Mrs. Pettigrew's voice shook. Another rat darted past. The Dementor glided behind him to make its rounds on the other end of the cell block. The lump on the bed didn't stir. Serious black, Remus said again, forcing himself to speak more loudly, and the lump grunted and stirred, turning to face him. Remus stifled a cry. Sirius didn't lift his head from the bed right away but simply stared at the old lady in front of him with blank, empty eyes. His lips were raw and cracked and his black hair clung to the side of his face with dirt and sweat. His empty stare registered the old lady and a glimmer of recognition sparked. His eyebrows knitted together. He sat up slowly, as though his joints ached with the effort, and he sniffed the air like a dog. You smell like him, Sirius said, his voice hard and gravelly with disuse. He stood up and the grey blanket fell to the floor. Remus's head swam and he gripped the bars so tightly that his fingernails dug into his palms. The man standing in front of him had become nearly unrecognizable in the twenty-six days since Remus had last seen him. Not so much physically, although Remus's heart dropped at the sight of Sirius's two sharp collarbones and elbows poking out of his thin frame, but something else. Gone was Sirius's beautiful, cocky elegance. Instead, he looked rough and skittish, like a dog who'd been beaten too many times. A distant scream rent the air and Remus jumped. The sound seemed to rouse something in Sirius. What do you want with me, he said, his voice hot and fierce. You smell like him. Did you hurt him? 
I swear if you hurt him. Remus was startled at Sirius's outburst, but most of all he felt relief at the defiance ringing in Sirius's voice and the rage blazing in his eyes. There you are, Remus thought, and as he did, something flared to life in his chest, triumphant and hot. He felt it radiate out of him and into the atmosphere, and something changed. Although he could see the Dementor as it glided back and forth down the dank cell block and hear its ravenous, rattling breaths, he felt its despair only distantly, like hearing muffled sounds underwater. Sirius seemed to feel it too, because he stumbled back a little with a hand on his chest, then looked around, disoriented, as though someone had turned on a light in a dark room. Why are you here? he said more forcefully than ever, striding toward Remus and slamming his hands against the bars with newfound strength. Sirius heaved with rage as Remus fumbled with the clasp of his handbag. He pulled out the letter and slipped it through the bars with shaking fingers, giving Sirius a look that he hoped would convey something more. Sirius looked down at the letter but didn't take it right away. He was sniffing the air again and looked up at Remus with an unreadable expression. Please, Remus said. Just read it. Sirius snatched the letter from the old lady's hands and Remus held his breath. He and Andromeda had decided to use code names in the letter, and Remus prayed that Sirius remembered his Greek mythology. He unfolded the paper and Remus watched Sirius's eyes widen as the English letters dissolved into ancient Greek. Another security measure that Andromeda had added with a tricky bit of blood magic on the ink, making it readable only to those who shared her blood. The advantages of being a black, she'd said. I hung on to just enough dark magic to be useful in tight spots. Now it was Sirius's hands that were trembling as he read what Remus knew was written there. Sirius. Do not react to anything you read in this letter. It's from the Chained Lady. Mrs. Pettigrew is your Mooney. We are going to get Padfoot out. But first we need to find the rat. Do you know where he went? It took Sirius a very long time to read the whole thing. Andromeda's ancient Greek had been rusty, too, and Remus's hour was almost up. Remus could feel the Dementor's cold restlessness through the heat of his talisman charm. Finally, Sirius looked up. There were tears in his eyes. He stretched out his shaking fingers to touch Remus's, which were still curled tightly around the cell bars. At his touch, Remus felt the talisman charm in his chest ignite anew, stronger, and hotter than ever. Their eyes locked and Remus knew that Sirius was seeing his eyes, despite the polyjuice potion. Mooney, Sirius mouthed silently, his tears running tracks down his dirty cheeks, and Remus nodded, hot tears burning his own eyes, too as they gripped each through the bars. The Dementor that had been making its rounds stopped halfway down the cell block, turned, and glided toward Remus with purpose. Sirius's head snapped up as the creature approached and he clutched Remus's wrist, as if to beg, no. No, not yet. Then he turned back to Remus, his eyes clear and wide with determination. Pencil, he hissed. Remus slipped one out of his handbag and through the bars, instinctively shifting his body to hide what he was doing, even though he knew the Dementor was blind. Sirius scribbled something onto the back of the letter from Andromeda and pushed it into the handbag just as the Dementor reached Remus. It hovered at Remus's elbow. The boat was leaving. 
Remus reached through the bars and pressed his palm against Sirius's chest, which heaved a startled breath. This feeling, Remus whispered, his eyes staring straight into Sirius's. Hold on to it. It'll keep you safe. I'll be back. Sirius held tight to Remus's wrist and nodded, the silent tears running thickly down his beautiful cheekbones. The Dementor rattled its breath more fiercely, and drifted upward, towering over Remus. A warning. Go, Sirius said. Remus withdrew his hand and walked away, following the Dementor back down the dark, damp cell block. He turned once to see Sirius still watching him, his too thin face pushed between the bars as far as it would go. I'm sorry, Sirius mouthed. I love you, Remus replied. Back on the boat, Remus made sure he was alone on the deck and discreetly unfolded the letter without removing it from his handbag. Sirius as usual, graceful handwriting was scribbled and hurried, but clearly legible. The rats here talk to Padfoot. Firehair pet. Ottery St. Catchpole. Chapter 20, Firehair Pet. January 2, 1982, 9.37 a.m., Ministry of Magic, Misuse of Muggle Artifacts Office. He's often late, the old man said. Remus and Andromeda exchanged a silent glance, and Remus knew she was thinking the same thing he was, no shit, Perkins. Arthur Weasley had been due at work at 8.30, just like every other Ministry of Magic employee, and Remus and Andromeda had arrived 15 minutes before that, just to be sure they'd see him right away. Now, more than an hour later, they were shifting uncomfortably on the wooden bench outside Arthur and Perkins's shared office. Remus felt annoyed. He hated lateness. Are you sure he's coming in today? Andromeda asked, turning around to stick her head into the office that was cluttered with plugs, television aerials, an electric fan, and a rubber bike tire. I think so, Perkins said without looking up from the form he was filling out. He was poking a salt shaker in different places and seemed to be writing down its reactions. So far it had giggled, gagged, and guffawed. He usually sends an owl along if he's going to be out. Remus's hip was starting to ache from sitting in one position for too long and was just about to tell Andromeda that he was going to take a short walk when a tall, red-haired man in a threadbare trench coat and long scarf that dragged on the floor bustled down the hallway. He was holding a battered briefcase in one hand, a sloshing cup of tea in the other, and had three pieces of toast clenched between his teeth. Morning, Perkins, he mumbled through his breakfast. His eyes fell on Remus and Andromeda. He put down the briefcase and bit through the three slices of toast. Hello, he said, looking at them quizzically while he chewed. People here to see you, Arthur, Perkins said. The salt shaker growled. Remus stood up. We've actually met before, Remus said, extending a hand for Arthur to shake. Remus Lupin. I was a friend of Gid and Fabe. In truth, Remus barely remembered Arthur. When he'd met the Weasleys at Gideon and Fabian's funeral he found himself half horrified, half transfixed by Gid and Fabe's sister, who was holding one baby, about to pop pregnant with another, and tearfully chasing after five, five, additional flame-haired children, all boys. Why anyone would want one kid, let alone seven, was a mystery to Remus.
He had a vague recollection of the boy's father being around, too, but in Remus's memory he was something of a nonentity. However, Arthur Weasley seemed to remember him. Yes, Lupin, he said. Dumbledore's, special liaison. This took Remus by surprise. Arthur wasn't in the order. He seemed to read Remus's expression and leaned in to speak directly into his ear. The order of the Phoenix's network is bigger than some people realize, he said in a low voice and Remus felt his neck grow hot. Fucking Dumbledore and his damn secrets. Arthur straightened up and turned his attention to Andromeda. And your friend? he asked, extending a hand to her, too. Andromeda Tonks, she said. Ah, Ted's wife, Arthur said with a smile that Remus couldn't help but notice was a bit cautious. Good man, Ted. He helped me out of a tight jam a few months ago when I got my finger stuck in a, anyhow. What can I do for you? Remus and Andromeda glanced at each other and then at Perkins. Is there somewhere we can talk, privately? Remus asked. I suppose there's an empty conference room somewhere. Arthur started to say, but Andromeda cut him off. No, she said in a sharp voice. Arthur tilted his head and looked at her with narrowed eyes. Not here, she said. We don't want to be overheard, Remus said. By anyone. Arthur's eyes flicked back and forth between the two of them for a moment before he nodded. All right, he said slowly, not taking his eyes off them. Just give me a minute. He dropped the briefcase on his desk chair and said something quiet to Perkins, who looked up at Remus and Andromeda and nodded. He stepped out of his office, put his hands in his trench coat pockets, and shrugged. Lead the way, he said. A few minutes later, the three of them were drinking coffees in the back of a dingy pub across the street from the ministry's visitor entrance. So, Arthur said. Care to tell me what this is all about? Remus nodded and took a deep breath. He felt Andromeda watching him as he started to explain. This is going to sound like a strange question, Remus said slowly, his eyes not leaving Arthur's. But did you recently get a pet rat? Arthur blinked. Whatever he was expecting, this was clearly not it. You pulled me away from my office on the day after Christmas break to ask me about our family pets, he asked slowly. He looked between them with a bemused expression. Yes, Remus said. I told you it would sound strange. But we're asking for a good reason. Well, then, yes, Arthur said, and Remus felt his heartbeat speed up. Andromeda shifted in her seat and gripped Remus's knee under the table. It belongs to our son, Percy. When did he get it? Andromeda hissed. Ah. I'd say a couple months ago. Maybe a few weeks after Halloween. Andromeda let out a heavy breath. Where did you get it? Remus asked, a little more forcefully than he meant to, and Arthur blanched. Remus knew they needed to calm down. I mean, did you get it from a shop, or? No, Arthur said, shaking his head. He sort of just appeared in the house one day. At this, Remus and Andromeda's heads snapped to look at each other, evidently with such startled expressions that Arthur interjected. It happens a lot with five boys, Arthur assured them. 
frogs in pockets, salamanders jumping in the fireplace. There's even a ghoul in our attic. He chuckled weakly, but his smile faltered when Remus and Andromeda didn't smile back. What's the matter with the rat? Arthur said. We don't think it's, we're not sure it's actually a rat, Remus said. We think it might be a wizard. Arthur's eyes widened. We can't say much more than that, Remus said. Well, you're going to have to say more. Arthur said with a mirthless laugh. If you think there's a wizard sleeping in my son's bed, I think I deserve details. We need to see him to be sure, Remus said. We think he's an unregistered animagus. Arthur was shaking his head. This is crazy, he said. Have you talked to anyone else about this? Dumbledore? Moody? No, Remus said. And I don't plan to. Then I'll tell him myself, Arthur said flatly. You come into my office, my office, pull me away, tell me you think my son's pet is a human and you want me to just. Name your price, Andromeda said abruptly. Excuse me? Arthur asked, affronted. We need to see the rat. And we need to keep it quiet. Name your price and I'll make it worth your while, she said. I can't believe, who do you think I am? You've got seven kids and a mid-level ministry job, Andromeda said coldly. You're really not in a position to say no. I don't want your damn money, Arthur said, his ears turning red. Especially since I know where it comes from. You might not want it, but you sure as hell need it, Andromeda snapped and Remus groaned internally. She had a lot more of the black family left in her than she was willing to admit. Heads were turning toward them now, looking for the source of the raised voices. The barman shot them a warning look and Remus nodded at him apologetically. Arthur, Remus said in a low and steady voice. I'll tell Dumbledore everything as soon as I'm totally sure what we're dealing with. But right now, it has to be this way. Arthur didn't reply. He was casting a wary look at Andromeda. She had been right. No one ever really trusted the Black family, no matter how hard they worked for the Order or anything else they did. Sirius's life sentence was all the evidence he ever needed of that and now that he'd seen the inside of Azkaban, he really understood how deep that prejudice went. I don't want to do anything to the rat. I just need to see him, Remus urged. Please. Trust me. I don't even know you, Arthur said. But you know Dumbledore. And you know he trusts me. You know what he asked me to do for the order. Arthur glanced over at Andromeda again, who was losing patience. She scowled and Remus wished she hadn't chosen that moment to crack her knuckles. No one should know everything about a plan, Remus pressed on. Isn't that what Dumbledore always says? We're just following his example. Please. Arthur sighed and looked at Remus for a long moment. I don't want you in my house, he said finally. Or anywhere near my family. We can do it somewhere else. So, you'll let us see him. Remus said. I'll let you see him, Arthur said pointedly. Not her. Andromeda rolled her eyes, but Remus nodded, ready to agree to whatever Arthur's conditions were. Fine, Remus said. Whatever you want. 
Thank you, Arthur. Don't thank me. I know Dumbledore trusts you, he said with a sigh. I suppose I don't see what harm can come from you just seeing the rat. Remus's nose was longer, and his jaw wider. His soft, golden-brown curls had been transformed into straight, black hair, and his face was covered in a thick black beard. His scars were gone. He wore tortoise-shell glasses and a brown tartan newsboy cap. And he had absolutely drenched himself in Ted's horntail musk cologne. You stink, Andromeda said, coughing a little. Good, Remus replied, adjusting the hat and looking at his unfamiliar reflection in the mirror. He can't recognize me, by sight or smell. He and Andromeda apparated into the alley behind the leaky cauldron. When they landed, Andromeda adjusted Remus's hat and brushed his robes unnecessarily with her hands, until Remus gently gripped her wrists to get her to stop. Calm down, he said. I'm just going into a shop. It's not like I'm breaking into Azkaban again. I know, she nodded and scratched her chin, looking at the brick sidewalk under their feet. I hate that I have to keep leaving you alone. I'll be fine. Go in the pub, get a drink, he said, nodding toward the leaky cauldron's back entrance. I'll find you as soon as I'm done. She nodded again and started to turn before spinning back and wrapping Remus in a tight hug. We're so close, he whispered and felt her nod into his chest. Then she took a step back and slugged him hard on the shoulder. Hey, he said, rubbing his arm. What the hell? That's what the Slytherin Quidditch team always did before a big match, she said. Got us pumped up and ready to wipe the floor with the other team. Thanks, he said. But I think I'm pumped up enough, okay? Whatever you say, she said. She pecked him on the cheek and disappeared into the pub. Five minutes later, he walked into the cacophony of squawks, growls, chirps, and squeaks that was the magical menagerie and positioned himself inconspicuously by the desk behind a copy of Hippogriff Fancy magazine. He was just turning to an article about the winners of the Hippogriff Kennel Club show when the bell above the door tinkled and Arthur walked into the shop with a large bulge in the pocket of his trench coat. Arthur caught Remus's eye and Remus tipped his hat to him. Arthur touched his temple in acknowledgement and approached the counter. Can I help you? asked a witch in white robes. Yes, please, Arthur said in a forced casual voice, his fingers tapping on the counter as he spoke. His ears were already red. My son just got a new pet, and I was hoping someone could give him a once-over, tell me what we should be feeding him, if he looks healthy, you know, stuff like that. Remus sighed. Arthur had no future as a spy. Of course, the witch said, looking out the window as though expecting to see a creature tied up on the sidewalk outside. Oh, no, 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 Arthur laughed. I have him right here. Arthur reached into his coat pocket and put the furry little creature onto the counter. Remus felt rage boil in his veins like molten iron and adrenaline course through his muscles. There, not three feet in front of him, looking content, healthy, and well-fed, was Peter Pettigrew. Chapter 21, Wrong Man January 4, 1982 Remus waited outside the Ministry of Magic Visitors' entrance with the collar of his heavy wool coat turned up against the cold January air.
He leaned against the dilapidated old building with a foot resting on the brick wall behind him. He shoved one hand deep into his pocket and lit a cigarette with the other. He really hoped that Arthur would be on time for work today. Lupin, said a voice at Remus's shoulder. He turned to see Arthur Weasley striding toward him. Morning Arthur, he said. Well? Arthur asked. Wrong rat, Remus told him. Sorry for wasting your time. Arthur looked relieved but not quite ready to let the subject drop. Are you sure? Arthur said. Because I really don't want that thing in my house if it's. It's not, Remus said curtly. Don't worry. Remus put out his hand to shake Arthur's and say his goodbyes. Arthur shook it, looking sympathetic. Sorry, Lupin, he said. I really do wish I could have helped you. It's all right. You did help me, Remus replied. One rat down. Ten million to go. Arthur said. Something like that, Remus said. Anyway, thanks. I hope our paths cross again, Lupin, Arthur said with a small smile. Remus looked at him and nodded. I'm sure they will, he said. He walked across the street to where Andromeda was waiting for him in the same pub in which they'd first talked to Arthur a few days ago. All good, she asked, silently pushing the coffee she'd already ordered for him across the table. All good, he said. I told him it was the wrong rat, and he went on his way. Okay, Andromeda said with a sigh. Well, at least that's taken care of. I still hate the idea that he could just scurry away any minute. It's only for a couple of days. And besides, he won't go anywhere, Remus said bitterly. He's safe, well-fed, totally hidden, and in a perfect position to hear every bit of news from the wizarding world. He chose a family that's order-adjacent, but not so cozy with Dumbledore that he'll be popping in and out all the time. Hell, they'll have a steady stream of kids at Hogwarts, too. Peter could hear what Dumbledore's doing for the next twenty goddamn years. Really, he couldn't have picked a better fucking family than the Weasleys. With this last sentence, Remus banged his fist on the table, rattling the silverware and bottles of malt vinegar. Andromeda was quiet. She traced her finger around the rim of her coffee mug. You really underestimated him, huh? Remus put his elbows on the table and sunk his head onto his hands, running his fingers through his hair and pulling at the ends. He couldn't erase from his mind the image of the fat, happy rat, its light brown markings so familiar to Remus, scurrying back and forth on the counter at the magical menagerie without a care in the world. He's so sweet, the shopkeeper had cooed, as the rat playfully jumped between her hands. The rat blissfully closed his eyes when she scratched behind his ears and nibbled eagerly at the carrot she offered him. As Remus watched, every nerve ending in his body twitched and buzzed, begging him to just snatch the rat from the counter and throttle the thing. He could have done it, too, so, so easily. He didn't need to be the wolf to kill this tiny, stupid creature. He could have done it right then with his bare hands. It would have taken no effort at all. He'd just squeeze, just wrap his thick fingers around the rat's neck and snap it, ending his life instantly. The same way Peter ended Lily and James's. He was controlling himself, though.
He didn't kill the rat. He couldn't. They needed him alive. Instead, he counted his breaths, in and out, like Madame Pomfrey taught him to do for pain so many years ago. But then he saw it. The rat scampered onto the shopkeeper's shoulder and Remus got a clear view of his front paws. One paw was totally normal, and the other was missing a single toe. Something in Remus's mind broke and he had to get out. He left the magical menagerie so fast he accidentally stole the magazine he'd been hiding behind. But he didn't care. He just elbowed through the crowd of people, crashed through the door, and stumbled into the leaky cauldron, barely registering how he got there. Andromeda got to her feet, her face as white as a sheet, and caught him by the shoulders. It's him, Remus panted. We have to get out of here or I'm going to kill him. They hurried out the pub's back door and apparated away. Later, they sent an apologetic owl to Arthur, writing some excuse that Andromeda made up on the spot and asking to meet him outside the ministry the next morning. Remus had been unsure about whether to tell Arthur the truth about Peter, but something about seeing the rat's missing toe made him realize that they had to do this alone. The more Remus thought about it, the more he realized how easy it had been for him and Andromeda to figure out that Peter was guilty. Absurdly easy, really. It took them less than a month to do it, with no ministry resources, none of the power of the Wisingamot, and no horrors on their side. All they had was a bit of determination and the imagination to look in the right places. And that made Remus furious. It was all right there, and so easy to find. The guilty rat and his missing finger fit together like a perfect puzzle, for fuck's sake. But no one cared to put it together, not even Dumbledore, that supposed beacon of righteousness and justice. No one wanted to revisit the war now that Voldemort was gone, no one wanted to poke at fresh wounds that had barely started to heal. It was time to punish the guilty and quickly move on, the quicker and tidier the better. And Sirius's guilt was just so tidy. He was a black. The lie of his guilt was much more convenient than the messy, difficult truth. Just lock him away and pretend he no longer existed. Remus hated them all. And he had absolutely no faith in the notion that simply turning Peter over to the ministry would set Sirius free, not when the truth had been sleeping in Percy Weasley's bed for the past two months. Because Sirius did exist. Remus had seen him. He had pressed his hand to his chest and promised to come back for him. And that's exactly what Remus would do. He knew that part of his boiling anger came from the approaching full moon, which would also be in a total eclipse that month. The eclipse would make their plan simultaneously easier and harder. But it also made Remus feel more erratic in the days leading up to his transformation, and his emotions harder to calibrate. Remus? Andromeda said gently. He looked up at her, his head still in his hands. Finish your coffee, she said. We need to pack. By the eve of the full moon, they were fully ready except for one thing that would need to be done at the last minute, taking the wolfsbane potion. They'd deposited one small bag with a tent and food inside a cave in North Yorkshire. Another bag they would take with them to the island. It contained clean muggle clothes, blankets, didney, water, and a second-hand wand that Andromeda had bought in Diagon Alley. They'd also checked the current water temperature of the North Sea, 
6 degrees Celsius. Not quite freezing, but not exactly comfortable. At least they'd both be covered in fur. Chapter 22, Eclipse January 9, 1982, 30 minutes before sunset. Remus landed with a soft splash on the wet sand and jumped back just in time for a frothy wave to crash up the beach toward his feet. The cold ocean air whipped his hair across his watering eyes, and the surf churned and swirled around the craggy, barnacle-covered rocks that surrounded him. The island was tiny, desolate, and barren, the only vegetation the scrubby dune grass that cast dark swaying shadows in the quickly fading sunlight. He had to hurry. He found a dry spot on the beach underneath a rocky outcropping where he tucked his rucksack and sheltered himself from the wind. There, he removed the things he needed, his wand and a muggle thermos filled with the wolfsbane potion, which he drank down in three bitter, shuddering gulps. He shivered and looked across the slate-gray ocean at Azkaban Fortress just a half-mile away. It didn't look very far at all from this vantage point, but he knew that the frigid water would have something else to say about the distance. He looked down at his watch. Twenty minutes until sunset. He settled onto the cold sand and put the essentials, warm blankets, essence of Dibney, and the spare wand, at the top of his rucksack so he could get to them easily in the morning. He hoped they wouldn't need the Dibney, but better to be safe than sorry. They'd be exhausted the next morning, too exhausted to apparate safely, so Andromeda would be arriving exactly five minutes after sunrise to get them. Them. A lot had to happen for him to be able to use the word them. A lot had to go right. A lot had to be trusted to chance. But Remus didn't allow himself to consider a scenario where he and Andromeda would leave this island alone. With five minutes until sunset, Remus could already feel his skin tightening, his joints groaning, the wolf stretching and prowling inside of him to get free. He quickly stripped off his sweater, jeans, and boots, put them underneath his rucksack, and positioned his wand next to his feet. The red rim of the sun dipped below the horizon. It was time. The pain of transforming never went away, no matter how many moons he'd lived through. Scorching heat tore across his back as his shoulder blades dragged downward and his limbs curled forward. Thick gray fur pierced his skin like a blanket of needles and the bones in his skull cracked and pulled as they elongated. Everything erupted from him, teeth, claws, ears, pain, and his nerves crackled with agony in canine energy. Textbooks described the werewolf transformation as being practically instantaneous, but Remus knew better. It was often agonizingly long and drawn out, taking as long as five minutes sometimes, depending on the time of year and how the planets were aligned. It was quite a terrible thing to watch. Most people wouldn't have been able to stomach it. His friends did, though. His friends never looked away. It was his third moon alone. But not for long. Just like last month, the Wolfsbane potion was true to its promise. Remus's body was wolfish, but his mind was completely and totally his own. This time, though, instead of feeling lonely, Remus felt powerful, as though the best and strongest parts of him, his human brain and the wolf's strength and potent instincts, were finally fused together for the first time in his life. Suddenly, 
Crossing the half-mile stretch of sea felt easy as his canine senses pulled him toward the island looming in the distance. Was it his human imagination playing tricks on his wolf ears, or could he hear Sirius's heartbeat pulsing across the water in time with the waves? The wolf ran an excited lap across the beach before picking up the wand in his mouth, bounding into the surf, and quickly submerging himself into the water. It was cold, but only distantly so, his thick fur providing a layer of warmth between himself and the sea. His legs kicked powerfully as he swam away from the tiny island and toward the fortress ahead of him. Seawater splashed into his mouth, but he kept his jaws closed tightly around the wand, the newly risen moon casting a silvery glow across the dark water. He bobbed with the waves, only getting knocked off course slightly a few times when a particularly strong current swirled around him, but otherwise keeping a steady path forward. He kicked closer and closer to Azkaban's island and was barely fatigued when he felt broken shells, rocks, and sand start to scratch under his paws. Easy, Remus thought, jumping out of the crashing surf and onto the rocky shore. Sharp rocks and treacherous ravines stretched between himself and the fortress, but the wolf traversed them with ease, leaping gracefully across places that would have devoured a human almost instantly. When he reached the prison, Remus shook his fur dry and allowed the wolf to get its bearings, sniffing and listening sharply as it circled Azkaban's huge perimeter. He stopped and stood completely motionless except for his twitching ears. The wolf's keen senses knew something was there before Remus's brain could even catch up. A flickering shadow that his human eyes would have missed altogether. But the wolf knew. Rats. He followed the sound of their claws scratching softly against the rocks until he reached a small wooden door. The wood was soft and rotted at the bottom, no doubt from years of seawater rising against it, and large splinters of wood were falling away in jagged hunks, giving the rats an easy entrance. The wolf growled with delight and the rats scampered away into the darkness. He put the wand down and tore away the rotted wood with his strong claws until he'd made a hole big enough for himself to fit through. He picked up the wand again and crawled inside. If the smell inside the prison was strong when Remus had visited as a human, it was absolutely overwhelming as a wolf. It engulfed him, so much so that it felt confusing at first, like an information overload. Slowly, though, he realized that the waste and dirt and blood scents were mingled with something else, something Remus hadn't been able to pick up on last time, the smell of the prisoners themselves. He could smell their blood, their breath, their sweat, even their fear. The wolf sniffed the air carefully, trying to pick out each individual scent, like pieces of thread, until he found one he recognized, one that sent a feeling of warmth into his stomach. Serious. He followed the scent through the dark maze of cell blocks, past swooping and gliding dementors, who no doubt took his presence and softly scratching paws on the dirt floor as just another bunch of rats helping themselves to the prisoners' moldy crusts of bread. Not only were the dementors' senses dulled toward the wolf, but the wolf's senses were dulled to theirs, and Remus felt them directing their poisonousness toward the prisoners, not him. Left, right, right, left. The floor sloped up and then down and then sharply right again, and with each turn, Sirius's scent grew heavier and thicker in Remus's nostrils. And finally, Sirius was sitting with his back to the bars of his cell in the middle of the floor, 
his neck craned upward toward a spot in the wall where a tiny sliver of light from the full moon shone through a crack in the stone. He didn't turn around when Remus approached and for a moment, Remus just stood there, forgetting he was a wolf. He opened his mouth to say Sirius's name, but no words came out, of course. Only the small whine of a wolf recognizing one of its own. Sirius's head whipped around so fast that he had to brace himself with his palms pressed against the filthy floor to keep from falling over. He gasped at the sight of the wolf and scrambled to the bars on his hands and knees, as though unable to stand up. Mooney, he breathed, his eyes wide. Are you real? Remus pushed his muzzle through the bars and dropped the wand to the floor in reply. Sirius didn't move, even though the werewolf's teeth were inches from his body at the full moon, as though he didn't care whether he joined Mooney in his monthly curse. Remus nudged the wand toward Sirius with his nose and looked up at him, willing him to pick it up. Remus could hear Sirius's heart pounding wildly. When he finally picked up the wand, it was with trembling fingers. His breath came in sharp, stabbing gasps. Sirius slowly got to his feet, staring at the wand in his hand as if unsure what to do with it. The wolf whined, making Sirius look up. But he wasn't the only one. A Dementor was approaching. Had it heard the whine of a creature that wasn't supposed to be there? Remus and Sirius each held their breath as the Dementor swept past, its ragged, rotted cloak brushing over Remus's paws and making his hackles stand up on end. After it passed them, Sirius rushed toward the bars and peered out, watching the Dementor disappear into the darkness before turning to look into the wolf's amber eyes. Stand back, he whispered. Remus backed up as much as he could, and Sirius yelled. Bombarda! The iron bars flew apart as a shower of rock and debris cascaded onto their heads. Remus closed his eyes against the explosion for a moment and when he opened them, he saw Sirius scrambling through the rubble and could smell fresh blood leaking from a wound on Sirius's shoulder. Sirius ignored his injury and got to his feet, pushing the wand back into the wolf's mouth before transforming into Padfoot, just as the Dementor started to swoop down on them from all directions. The dog and the wolf raced down the cell block, through the Dementor's swishing cloaks and grasping, scabbed hands. The other prisoners were shouting now and kicking at their bars as they ran past. Whether it was to cheer on their escape or alert the blind Dementors, Remus didn't know. All he knew was the scent of the clean ocean air getting stronger as they approached the rotted wooden door that led to freedom. They scrambled around one last corner and burst into the cold night, leaping over the jagged rocks and down the beach, sand flying under their paws. They dove into the foaming waves side by side. They were free. They swam fast against the waves and currents, their muscles burning and aching with every kick. The Dementors poured out of Azkaban and clouded the night sky, swooping around the fortress looking for their quarry but they were gone, just two more creatures in the sea. Remus could feel their rage and fury rippling across the water, but instead of fearing it, he let it give him power. He felt that rage and fury too, and it was time to use it. The water was dark. Darker than it had been on Remus's swim out to Azkaban. The eclipse was slowly dousing the light of the full moon. They were so close to shore, and Remus's heart soared. He chanced a glance behind him, only to find that Padfoot wasn't at his side anymore.
Instead, he saw the dog's dark outline bobbing up and down a few feet behind him. Waves crashed into his eyes and mouth as he gasped for air. And then Remus smelled it. Blood in the water. It wouldn't be long before other creatures smelled it, too. Remus doubled back, swimming hard toward Padfoot, who was kicking weakly as he struggled to keep his head above the waves. Blood clouded the water around him, and Remus whined and growled, willing Padfoot forward, but he didn't move. Padfoot's eyes started to drift closed, and without thinking Remus nipped at him. As he did, his wand fell from his mouth and swirled, as though in slow motion, down into the ocean's depths. It was a loss but not the biggest one Remus risked tonight. He closed his mouth as gently as he could around the scruff of Padfoot's neck and swam with all his might toward the shore. It was difficult, awkward work and Remus felt his lungs burning with every stroke through the water, which now felt like icy lead. Finally, the waves started crashing around them and Remus realized that there was sand beneath his feet. The wolf dragged the dog up the beach as gently as he could, tracing a thick line through the wet sand. He stopped at the rocky outcropping where Remus had hidden his rucksack and used his teeth to pull one of the blankets from the bag. He spread it as best he could across Padfoot's shivering body, which was so much thinner than the last time he'd seen it. Remus saw the spot where Padfoot was bleeding but didn't trust himself to open the essence of Didney with his teeth without spilling it, so instead, he pressed his paws into the wound, and curled up next to the dog to keep him warm until morning. Remus felt Padfoot's breathing become slow and steady, and for the first time in his life, he wanted to pray. He didn't have anyone or anything to pray to, so he prayed to the moon, which was in total eclipse now, reddish and dark against the night sky. Please, he begged, his eyes not leaving the dark orb that hung in the air above their heads. Please don't let him die on this beach. I've done everything I could. Think of what you've taken from me. Think of what you make me become. He loves me despite what I am. Don't take him from me. Not now. Give something back to me. Just this once. Please. He rested his chin on Padfoot's back and fell into an uneasy sleep. Chapter 23, The Cave Remus woke at sunrise to the sound of waves crashing and gulls crying in the early morning light. His naked body was curled against the still-sleeping Padfoot and covered in sticky sand. His head swam and his muscles ached. Although the wolfsbane potion made his transformation easier, his body felt heavy from swimming a mile in the freezing ocean and the effort of dragging Padfoot to shore. But he didn't have time to linger on the pain. Andromeda would be there any minute to apparate them away. He pushed himself up and started to get dressed when a burst of silvery light exploded in front of his eyes and formed into a magnificent, winged horse. Andromeda not coming, the Patronus said in Ted's voice. Ministry here, searching the house. Get off the island now. Remus had barely caught his breath when the Patronus dissolved in mid-air into silvery tendrils and vanished. He stared at the spot where it had been for a split second before a surge of adrenaline shot through his body and he got to his feet. He scrambled to finish getting dressed and shoved everything into the rucksack. Remus pulled the blanket from Padfoot's body and saw the gash on the dog's shoulder. It was open and caked with blood around his fur, but no longer actively bleeding.
he pulled out the dipney and dripped a tiny amount over the wound. Remus had no idea how well the potion worked on animals and didn't want to waste it in case it didn't work at all. But the wound knitted together enough that Remus thought Padfoot could move without reopening it. He finished packing the rucksack, grabbed the second-hand wand, and started to shake Padfoot awake, when he saw the supply boat. It was just offshore and headed to Azkaban. Remus ducked low behind the rocks and held his breath as he watched the boat glide through the water past the tiny island where they were hidden. They had to get out of there now. Padfoot, Remus hissed, shaking the dog. Serious. But the dog stirred only slightly and whimpered a little beneath Remus's hand. They had no time. He had to try to apparate them both while the dog slept. He glanced once more at the supply boat, which was about to dock at Azkaban, grabbed the rucksack and Padfoot's paw, and thought of the North Yorkshire cave with all the strength he could muster. On the supply boat, the head of the British Aurora office thought he heard the distinctive crack of someone apparating over the sound of the waves. He looked all around and rushed over to the starboard side of the boat but saw nothing but swooping gulls. Remus and Padfoot landed gracelessly in a thicket of trees, slamming hard into the frozen ground. Remus looked around. Where were they? He scrambled to his feet and looked in each direction, trying to spot something familiar, when finally, his eyes landed on a large rock that he recognized about 500 feet away. He turned back toward Padfoot, who was whimpering louder now. Remus saw that the wound had reopened and was covered in fresh blood. Trying to steady his own ragged breathing, Remus pointed the second-hand wand at the rucksack laying on the ground next to the dog. Akio Dittany, he said, and the little bottle flew into his hand. He poured a few more drops over the wound, which once again closed over slightly, enough to stop the bleeding. Wingardium Leviosa, he said next, and Padfoot lifted a few feet off the ground. Remus grabbed the rucksack and walked over to the large rock using his wand to bring Padfoot, too. Finally, Remus saw the cave and felt relief flood his chest. He lowered Padfoot inside and retrieved the bag that he and Andromeda had hidden there a few days before. He quickly set up the tent and cast a series of strong protective enchantments around them. He levitated Padfoot through the tent entrance and onto one of the beds before sinking into a threadbare chintz sofa and closing his eyes. He and Andromeda knew that the Ministry would eventually question her about Sirius's escape, but he thought they'd have more than a couple hours before they showed up at her house. He wondered whether there were Aurors searching his flat, too. There would be nothing for them to find, Remus had made sure of that. Anything important was hidden in this tent, which they'd filled with comfortable, if second-hand, furniture and supplies. There was a shower, blue, a small kitchenette, a camp table and chairs, lanterns, and beds, plus enough food, water, blankets, clothes, and supplies for a week. Remus thought they were overdoing it when they packed a few days ago, but Andromeda had insisted and now he was grateful. Who knew how long they would need to hide out for? Remus was exhausted but couldn't rest yet. He had to check on Padfoot and get the dog to wake up long enough to turn back into Sirius so Remus could properly tend to that wound. He pulled out water, soap, clean clothes, bandages, the didney, and his wand and placed it next to Padfoot's sleeping body. 
he knelt beside the dog and placed a hand on his back. Serious, he said, gently but firmly into the dog's ear, which twitched. Serious, he said again, louder this time and he shook the dog a little too. Finally, the dog's eyes opened, and he looked at Remus. He whined weakly and licked Remus's face. Serious, Remus said. I know you're tired. But you have to transform back into yourself. I need to take care of that cut. You can go right back to sleep, I promise. The dog whined again and closed his eyes but obeyed. Sirius lay on the camp bed with his eyes closed, naked and shivering, and Remus felt his heart break at the sight of him. He was skinny and filthy, his hair ratty and matted, with dirt caked under his fingernails. The wound on his shoulder looked worse now that he wasn't a dog and even as he slept, Remus saw that his eyebrows were knitted together in pain. Once again, hot tears filled Remus's eyes and he gritted his teeth and curled his fists in anger toward everyone who did this, everyone who looked away and let this happen to Sirius while the real killer walked free. He had to do something with all that rage. He stepped outside the tent, cast Muffliato around himself, and screamed his throat raw, pointing his wand at rocks and exploding them into dust again and again until he felt the rage run dry. Then he went back into the tent to do his work. Essence of Dittany, healing spells, clean clothes, plenty of water, blankets, and a fire in the little camp stove made up their whole existence. Sirius slept for a full day and night after the full moon. Remus slept when he could, too, curling up behind Sirius on the bed and trying to keep him warm and comfortable, making him sip water, stroking his back and whispering in his ear when he cried out in his sleep. Sirius was mostly delirious, and Remus wasn't sure if it was because of blood loss, overexertion, or the lack of food and water in Azkaban. Probably all three. The second morning dawned bright and glittery, and when Remus woke up, he found that Sirius was awake too, laying facing him on the bed, his grey-blue eyes trained softly on Remus. I've been watching you, Sirius croaked. I couldn't tell if you were real. Sirius's eyes didn't leave Remus's face as he lifted a hand to Remus's scruffy cheek. I think you're real, he whispered, and Remus nodded. I am, Remus said, placing his own hand over Sirius's. Sirius closed his eyes at Remus's touch and nodded. His body started to shake with silent tears and Remus wrapped his arms around Sirius's skinny waist and pulled him in close, as close as it was possible to get. Sirius buried his face in Remus's chest and just cried, and Remus let him, rubbing Sirius's back with his strong hands. They lay like that for a long time, and Remus felt the same flare in his chest that he'd felt when he'd visited Sirius in Azkaban the first time. Talismanic love. He closed his eyes and let the feeling spread through his body and into Sirius's skin, hoping it would give him strength like it did before. Sirius stopped crying. His breathing steadied and slowed. Remus placed both hands on each of Sirius's cheeks, tilted his face up to his, and kissed him softly on the lips. You're safe, Remus said, and Sirius nodded, trying his best to believe it. Do you think you could eat something? Remus asked and Sirius nodded again. Remus kissed him on the forehead. Stay here, he said, starting to get up, but Sirius grabbed his hand. No. 
Sirius said. I, I want to come with you. I'm not going anywhere, Remus said with a gentle laugh, squeezing Sirius's hand and pointing a few feet away to the kitchenette. Just right there. But Sirius stood up anyhow, and Remus could see he was unsteady on his feet, like a baby deer. He didn't let go of Remus's hand as they walked the ten steps to the counter. Remus raised Sirius's hand to his lips and kissed his palm. I need my hand, Remus said. Just for a minute while I make you some toast and tea. Sirius nodded again and let go but kept himself so glued to Remus's shoulder that Remus could barely pour the water from the kettle. Remus settled Sirius onto the couch, set up their breakfast, and pulled a blanket over Sirius's shoulders. Your feet must be freezing, Remus said, looking at Sirius's bare feet on the drafty camp floor. He waved his wand, and a pair of thick wool socks flew into his hand from the backpack. He sunk to his knees on the floor at Sirius's feet and carefully put the socks on, his thumbs brushing against Sirius's prominent ankle bones. He looked up to see Sirius watching him intently. Remus crawled toward him and wrapped his arms around Sirius's waist. Sirius's fingers stroked up Remus's neck and through his curls. He leaned over, smelled Remus's hair, and sighed. Mm, my Mooney, he sighed. I was praying, can you believe it? To the full moon. I could see it shining in through the cracks in the wall. I was praying for the day I'd see you again. And then there you were. Like magic. He sat up and Remus did, too. They stared into each other's eyes for a moment and Sirius smiled. He ran a thumb over Remus's cheek, his jaw, his bottom lip. I thought you were a dream, Sirius breathed. I'd had that dream before. You dreamed that a werewolf appeared in your cell in the middle of the night. Remus laughed and he was relieved to hear Sirius laugh too. Well, Sirius admitted. Not exactly. But I dreamed of you. Remus nodded. I dreamed of you too. All the time. Did you dream of me blasting out of my cell and leaving Azkaban in rubble? He asked. Kind of, Remus said. Well, to be honest, I kind of hoped you'd try Alohomora first. You know me, Sirius said with a wry smile, and Remus's stomach flipped at the sly twinkle in his eye. Nothing subtle. Chapter 24, Revelations Sirius ate the toast that Remus made him, and the bacon he made after that, and the eggs he made after that. Starving, Sirius said, through a mouthful of eggs. Food in Azkaban is shit. I bet, Remus said, watching him warily and hoping he wouldn't make himself sick by eating so fast. I mean literally, Sirius said, a bit of egg falling out of his mouth onto the too big t-shirt he was now wearing. If you told me that someone had actually shit in a bowl and fed it to us, I'd believe it. Sirius, you don't have to. Remus started. Not that you want to eat with those soul-sucking bats swooping around, Sirius continued, now piling eggs and bacon onto a piece of toast, folding it like a sandwich, and taking a huge bite. And their breath. Sirius. Remus said, putting a hand on his shoulder. Sirius looked up, his cheeks bulging. What, he said thickly. 
You don't have to make jokes, Remus said. Or try to lighten the mood. I'm not going anywhere. Sirius swallowed and looked away. I'm afraid if I don't, I'll. Sirius said, looking at a spot on the floor and Remus saw a haunted look cloud his eyes, the kind he used to get after spending too much time at home getting abused into quiet submission by his mother. Remus nodded and took his hand again. You can do whatever makes you feel calm, he said. Just don't think you have to do anything for my benefit. I'm here. Okay. Just for you. For whatever you need. Even after. Sirius looked down at Remus's hand, that cloud of doubt and shame still hanging over his neck like the blade of a guillotine. Even after what I've done. Sirius, you haven't done anything, Remus said fiercely. Look at me. You haven't done anything wrong. None of this is your fault. But it's all my fault, Sirius said, finally meeting Remus's eyes and shaking his head, his voice shuddering. Everything. Everything is my fault. Believe me, Remus, I've had a lot of time to think about this. It's all I've done. I've gone over and over it all. Sirius, the Dementors make you relive your worst memories, they make you believe things that. I didn't crack up in there, okay? Sirius snapped, and Remus fell silent. I know what happened. Trust me, I remember everything. I'm the one, he convinced me to switch, and I did. Sirius's voice broke and Remus placed a tentative hand on his back. Who convinced you? James? Remus asked, and Sirius winced at the sound of James's name as though hearing it caused him physical pain. Sirius shook his head and Remus understood. Peter, Remus said, his voice heavy with resignation, and Sirius's haunted eyes stormed over with rage and shame. They thought it was you, Sirius said, meeting Remus's eyes again. Dumbledore and Moody. They thought you were the spy. We said no, no Remus would never. But then Peter. Sirius's voice was barely a whisper now, and he closed his eyes, as though trapped in a nightmare. Peter said, Padfoot, what if they use Mooney to get to you? The Death Eaters will know you're Prongs's secret keeper, everyone knows you're his best friend. And Mooney's spending so much time with Greyback, the Death Eaters know exactly where he is all the time. It would be so easy for them to go after him. We should switch. We should switch and not tell anyone. That way, it'll still be one of us, and you'll be keeping Remus safe. No one should know everything about a plan, isn't that what Dumbledore always says? Sirius continued in a voice so bitter Remus could almost taste it. James said. It doesn't matter who we make secret keeper, Pads. I know it's not any of you. And we switched. I handed James and Lily to Peter on a silver fucking platter. Who else could possibly be to blame for that? How about Peter? Remus said. But I'm the one. Sirius tried to retort, and now it was Remus's turn to cut him off. No. Remus said, his voice harsher than he meant it to be. Sirius looked as though Remus had slapped him. Peter did this. No one else. You've been punished enough. You don't have to punish yourself, too. I should have told you, 
Sirius said, and Remus remembered all those months of Sirius's evasiveness, all those times Sirius had shushed him or changed the subject when he asked about Lily and James. He remembered that terrible night when Sirius cried in his arms, begging them to keep trusting each other, no matter what. He pushed the memories away. What did they matter now? They were living in a totally different world. You did what you thought was right, Remus said, forcing himself to speak calmly. We all did. I don't deserve you, Sirius said sadly. I didn't deserve James and I don't deserve you. You should have left me in Azkaban. God damn it, Sirius, Remus yelled, and the door of the camp stove blew open, the fire flaring out in a whoosh of heat and emotion. Sirius jumped, startled by Remus's loss of control, and Remus stood up and waved a hand. The stove door slammed shut in a crash of metal on metal and Remus rounded on Sirius, his chest heaving. I got you out of Azkaban because I'm selfish, okay, he said, his voice straining with the weight of what he was feeling. I need you. I don't know how to live without you. So don't talk about me like I'm some kind of a saint, saying you don't deserve me. I never thought I deserved you. Maybe now I'm just trying to find a way to make us even. Sirius stood up and for a moment, Remus couldn't decide whether he wanted to shove him or kiss him. He felt like his blood was simmering under his skin. Luckily, Sirius decided for him. He strode over to Remus, looking strong and determined. He grabbed him roughly by the arms and kissed him hard, making Remus stumble backwards. But then Remus was pulling Sirius toward him and kissing him back with all the fire and fever that had been steaming in his body, like a pressure valve had been released. Sirius moaned and tilted his head back and Remus pressed fierce kisses down his neck and collarbone. This, Remus thought through his clouded brain. This, now. No more talking. When he reached the edge of Sirius's t-shirt with his mouth, he wrapped his hands around the fabric and pulled, ripping the shirt open in a single motion. Sirius let out a shuddering breath as Remus pushed what was left of the shirt down his arms and onto the floor, pressing his rough hands into Sirius's back and pulling him in closer, sucking and biting on every inch of Sirius's exposed skin. Sirius ran his fingers through Remus's hair and pulled his head back so he could kiss him again, pushing his tongue into Remus's mouth and his thigh between Remus's legs. They pressed against each other, and now it was Remus's turn to groan. Sirius sensed his advantage and ran his hands down Remus's backside before dragging his fingers to where he knew Remus was stiff with want. Sirius, Remus panted, and pulled off his own shirt, pushing Sirius across the room until he stumbled backwards onto the bed. Sirius looked up at him and reached his hands up to Remus's bare chest, running his fingers over his scars and the planes of his muscles with a hitch in his breath. You, he breathed, biting his bottom lip are more gorgeous than I remember. He grabbed Remus's face and pulled him into another fevered kiss. They were desperate with want, and Remus could feel every ounce of pent-up energy and emotion gathering like electricity everywhere their skin touched, every place Sirius's fingernails scratched across his body. Need you now, Remus whispered and they pulled off the rest of their clothes in a torrent of frantic movements, taking every spare moment to kiss and touch each other as though neither of them could ever get enough. Their bodies met and Remus felt the white heat of Sirius arching against him, 
of his breath quickening and his heart beating hard against his chest. They took each other every way they could, as though trying to make up for every missed moment. And when they finally cried out in ecstasy, it was in unison, each of their bodies shaking with desire. Remus's eyes rolled backwards, and little stars popped in his vision. They lay there, breathless and clinging to each other, hot and sticky, the fire blazing in the stove and the tent steamy with what had just exploded between them. Sirius pressed hungry little kisses against Remus's arms and chest, exhausted and delirious with the relief of it all. See? Remus said huskily, his fingers tracing the lines of Sirius's perfect face. I'm just selfish. How could I not have you? Chapter 25, Cocoon January 11 to 12, 1982 They lay in bed for a little while, wrapped around each other, a tangle of arms and legs and sheets in the warm little tent. It felt, in a way, like no time had passed at all between them, as they shared a cigarette while Sirius traced the scars that slashed across Remus's chest and torso with his long fingers just as he'd always done. Remus loved the way Sirius loved his scars, and with every touch Remus felt like maybe he could love them someday, too. Or at least could learn not to hate them so much. But when Remus went to run his fingers through Sirius's beautiful black hair like he always did, he found that it was impossibly tangled. Just cut it, Sirius said abruptly. What? Remus asked, astonished. This was Sirius Black, after all, whose Greek god handsomeness was made all the more devastating by his hair, and who knew it? It's a mess, Sirius said. It's disgusting, it feels like a rat's nest, and I'll never get a comb through it. Besides, every escaped convict needs a disguise, right? Are you sure? Remus asked. Calm down, Delilah, Sirius snorted. Yeah, I'm sure. And I need a shower, too. I don't think the North Sea quite washed all of Azkaban off me. Remus rifled through the bag he'd packed and pulled out the electric clippers and a pair of scissors. He held them both up to Sirius. How short? Remus asked. Buzz cut, he said, pointing to the clippers. No dicking around about it. Let's pop that cherry. Remus sat Sirius down in a chair in the middle of the floor and made quick work of it, first cutting off the knots with the scissors then buzzing the rest close to Sirius's scalp. Remus winced with every snip, but Sirius didn't bat an eye. He just lit another cigarette and calmly blew smoke rings until Remus was done. Remus vanished the pile of knotted hair from the floor and walked in front of Sirius to check out his handiwork. Well, fuck me, Remus said, shaking his head. If you insist, Sirius replied, stubbing out his cigarette and giving Remus a wicked grin. When I had a buzz cut, I looked like I was recovering from a terrible illness, Remus said, astonished. You spend twelve weeks in prison, shave your head, and somehow look better than ever. Indeed, with the short hair, the perfect angles of Sirius's face were thrown into sharp relief. The edge of his jawline was more defined, his blue eyes blazed brighter, and his tattoos rippled over the taut muscles of his neck and shoulders. It's a curse, Sirius said, shrugging. Now about that fucking. Sirius might have flirted and shagged like his old self, 
but he was still skittish and hesitant. He asked Remus to accompany him to the shower, and not only so they could spend more time together without their clothes on. He didn't want to be alone. I've had enough of my own company, he said sadly, pulling Remus through the tent by the hand wherever he went. And I never want you out of my sight again. Remus was happy to oblige, happy to listen to Sirius's grateful sighs as Remus washed his back with lots of suds on a pleasantly scruffy washcloth, happy to lather shampoo onto his scalp and massage his neck under the hot water. Sirius tilted his head back onto Remus's chest and closed his eyes, pulling Remus's arms around his waist from behind, letting the water run down their bodies. Remus hugged Sirius close and kissed his wet neck. When their skin was pink and pruney, they dried off and retreated back to the bed with big bowls of soup. The tent was so warm, the bed so soft, and their bodies so happy to be back next to each other, that Remus wished he could freeze time and just live in this moment with Sirius forever. Sirius was thinking along the same lines, apparently. Let's just stay here, yeah, he said. Screw London. Screw the ministry. We'll just keep refilling the soup pot and retire to a quiet life in, hey where are we anyway? North Yorkshire, Remus said, blowing on the soup spoon. Andromeda found this cave researching the most remote parts of Britain. The chained lady, Sirius said fondly. That letter was genius. How did you and Andromeda find each other anyhow? It's a long story, Remus said, but they had nothing but time at the moment, so he told Sirius everything about the past several months, fighting with Dumbledore, watching Bellatrix and Narcissa outside Twelve Grimald Place, Bellatrix's trial, sneaking into Malfoy Manor, visiting Mrs. Pettigrew, the Polyjuice Potion, finding Peter with the Weasleys, and of course, transforming into the wolf and swimming to Azkaban. He left out the part about Lily's and James's funeral. One thing at a time. I can't believe you did all that, Sirius said in a small voice, when Remus finished telling him the story. For me. I'd do anything for you, Remus said with a shrug. Sirius watched Remus for a moment, then silently took the empty soup bowl from Remus's hands and put it on the bedside table. Remus just watched him as he crawled across the bed and climbed on top of Remus's lap, straddling him and looping his legs around Remus's waist. Sirius's hands splayed across the back of Remus's neck, his strong fingers stroking through his hair and pulling him into a deep, slow kiss. I love you, Remus Lupin, he breathed into Remus's swollen lips. Remus's arms wrapped around Sirius's back and pulled him closer, deepening their kiss. Sirius's hands traveled to Remus's face and stroked his cheeks, his jaw, his neck. I love you so much. I love you too, Remus said. If their first time together was frantic with fevered intensity, then this time was slow and languid, filled with tender caresses and sweet promises and whispers. They were lost in each other, their thrusts and touches slow and purposeful, and Remus was unsure whose hands were whose, where his body started and where Sirius's began. Finally, Sirius got on his knees between Remus's legs, which he spread wide with his hands. He slowly kissed and licked Remus's chest, kissed down the line of dark hair that ran tantalizingly from Remus's navel to the spot Sirius was looking for between Remus's legs. Remus made a sound deep in his throat as Sirius's hot, 
wet mouth closed around him and he grasped the sheets and tensed his thighs as Sirius's practiced hands pumped and stroked. Remus's toes curled as he finished with a shuddering gasp and a tear rolling down his cheek, which Sirius reached up and flicked away with his thumb. As soon as the blood returned to Remus's brain, he was happy to return the favor, flipping Sirius onto his back and greedily having his way with him. After, they just curled into each other, burrowing under the heavy blankets, and falling into the first deep, peaceful sleep either of them had in months. The next morning, Remus woke to find Sirius already up and bustling around in the kitchenette. He was wearing only loosely fitting pajama bottoms that hung low around his hips, and Remus couldn't help but be startled and delighted anew at the sight of Sirius with his short hair in his lean, tattooed body, cracking eggs and making toast. Morning, gorgeous, Sirius said, looking up as Remus started to get out of bed. No, no, stay there. He said, rushing over to Remus and fluffing the pillows behind him. I'm making you breakfast in bed. You don't have to do that, Remus said, but allowed Sirius to push him back onto the pillows anyhow. I want to end our season of domestic bliss with a bang, Sirius said. Which I will be expecting after breakfast, he added with a wink. Remus felt a pang in his heart. They both knew that they couldn't make love all day in their little cocoon forever. As much as they wanted to pretend otherwise, Peter was still out there, Andromeda was being interrogated by the ministry, and Sirius was a wanted man. They'd allowed themselves a few days to rest and recover before buckling down to decide their next move. But first breakfast, Remus thought, as Sirius presented him with a tray filled with toast spread thick with marmalade, fluffy scrambled eggs, fat, juicy sausages, steaming coffee, and a single pink rose in a vase that he'd conjured while Remus wasn't looking. Your nourishment, my liege, Sirius said grandly and Remus laughed as Sirius bowed and placed the tray on his lap. I always thought I was the peasant in this relationship, Remus said. Get used to it, Mooney, Sirius said, settling down next to him and plucking a sausage off his plate. I'm going to be bowing down to you for the rest of my life. They chatted easily, about seemingly everything except James. Remus supposed they'd be able to, eventually. Instead, Sirius fumed at the idea of Harry living with his muggle aunt and uncle and insisted they go get him, one rescue mission at a time, Pads, Remus told him. Remus told Sirius about getting drunk with Andromeda, never could hold her liquor, that one. Should have seen her puking in her bridesmaid dress at Bellatrix's wedding, Sirius said with a snort. They talked about how funny Nymphadora was with her always changing hair color, and how good Ted and Andromeda had been to Remus, taking him in and feeding him like a stray puppy. Did you know that Andromeda tried to adopt you? Remus asked. She sent me an owl saying she wanted to after they disowned me, but I didn't think she was for real, Sirius laughed. Oh, she was for real, Ted said she tried three times, Remus said. Speaking of Andromeda, I think we should leave her out of the rest of this. With Peter. She might come kill you if you do that, Sirius said. I know, Remus replied. But I can't see how we can get a message to her safely. And besides, she's already got the ministry at her house. I don't want to put them in any more danger. Remus sipped the last of his coffee and when finished, he saw Sirius staring at the tent door with a faraway look in his eyes. 
Can we? Syria said, his voice sounding wistful but hesitant. I mean, is it safe for us to, to go outside for a minute? Yeah, of course, Remus said. I cast the protective enchantments about ten feet around us, we're fine. It's just that I haven't. Syria started, but the words seemed to get stuck in his throat. I haven't seen the sky in a while. Remus had thought his heart was done breaking for a while. He was wrong. Oh my god, Sirius, he said, jumping out of bed and rummaging madly for socks and shoes and heavy sweaters for them to put on. I'm such an idiot, I should have known. I've been keeping you trapped inside when you've been trapped for. Mooney. Sirius laughed, catching him by the hand and pulling him into a kiss. I'm never trapped when I'm with you. Remus allowed himself to be placated only for a moment, though, before continuing to look for warm clothes as fast as he could. They unzipped the tent entrance and stepped outside. The air was bitingly cold, and a few snow flurries fell around them, despite the sun shining through the gray clouds overhead. The flakes caught the sunlight and glittered as they floated through the air. Remus watched Sirius as he took a deep breath and tilted his head toward the sky, raising his arms as far as he could stretch them. Can they hear us? Did you cast sound spells, too? Sirius asked. No one can hear us, Remus assured him. And Sirius yelled at the top of his lungs, screaming to the trees and the stars they couldn't see. I'm free. Woohoo. Remus laughed as Sirius barreled into him, wrapping him in a gigantic bear hug. They stood, looking around at the thick woods, for a few more minutes before Sirius started bouncing up and down on the balls of his feet. I'm freezing my rocks off, he said. Let me nip into the tent for some blankets. Don't go anywhere. He kissed Remus's cheek and ducked inside. Remus was thinking about how happy he was, when he froze, his body tensing at the sharp crack of someone apparating close by. Instinctively, he held his breath and took a step back, even though he knew that whoever it was wouldn't be able to see or hear him. Then he saw a woman with a tangle of dark curls and heavily lidded eyes picking her way through the underbrush to the cave entrance. Remus gasped and stepped out of the range of the protective enchantments. Andromeda, he said. If Andromeda was startled to see him appear out of thin air, she didn't show it. Instead, she scowled and started running toward him. Remus fucking Lupin, she scolded. About fucking time. Shh, not here. Remus said, pulling her back into the protection of the spells around the tent. But that didn't break Andromeda's stride. I've been apparating here every goddamn day, freezing my tits off, waiting around this fucking cave for you. Meanwhile you blast your way out of Azkaban and go radio silent for three fucking days. Do you know how worried I've been? Remus didn't have time to respond. Sirius had reappeared in the tent entrance with an armful of blankets and a smirk on his face. My dear cousin, Sirius said. I see your ladylike comportment is still very much intact. Chapter 26, The Single Step Plan January 12, 1982 Sirius 
The frightening scowl evaporated from Andromeda's face and her eyes widened as she ran toward her cousin and threw her arms around his neck. Oh my god, you're okay. I can't believe you're okay, she said half laughing, half crying. Sirius caught Remus's eye over her shoulder and couldn't help laughing too. A little worse for wear, but Mooney's patching me up, he said, hugging her back as best he could through the armful of blankets he was still holding. Wait, wait, let me look at you, Andromeda said, stepping back and holding Sirius at arm's length. Your hair, she gasped. Did they do that to you in Azkaban? That bad, huh? Sirius said, running a hand across the back of his head. I asked Remus to cut it. It was a bit, unruly. You mean you did it on purpose, she asked with a grimace. Well, it'll grow back. Sirius laughed again, shaking his head, and looking to Remus for support. Do you hear her? he asked with mock indignation. I like it, Remus shrugged. Andromeda turned around and punched him on the arm. Fuck, Andromeda. You really need to stop doing that, Remus said, taking a protective step back from her. I was already mad at you, she said huffily, but her eyes were twinkling. And then you had to go shave him bald. I'm not bald. Sirius protested, but she ignored him. Remus, I'm freezing, she said. Do you still have that hot chocolate we packed? Hot chocolate? Sirius said. You've been holding out on me, Mooney. Remus sighed. Oh God, now there are two of them, he said to the sky, leading them into the tent. Hey, this is a nice setup. Andromeda said, shrugging her backpack onto the floor and looking around. Her eyes fell onto the bed with its rumpled sheets and bunched up comforter. And I see you created a cozy little love nest while I was getting interrogated by John Dawlish and his tendency to spit every time he utters the letter T. Sorry Andromeda, Remus said. Finally, she said. There it is. Apology accepted. I'm over it. Now, tell me everything. Andromeda listened, wide-eyed, at the whole story of Remus breaking Sirius out of Azkaban and promised she'd pick up another second-hand wand for Sirius later that day. She told them how three people from the Auror office arrived at her house at sunup the morning after the prison break, searched her house from top to bottom, and grilled her about her whereabouts the night before. I had an alibi, she said. I took Dora to the London Zoo, to dinner at the Leaky Cauldron, and then we visited Ted at work and stayed pretty late, since he was there overnight. Dora was knackered the next day, but I wanted to make sure as many people as possible saw me. She looked at Remus. They asked me about you, she said quietly. Remus felt Sirius's body tense next to his, but he just nodded. We knew they would, he said. Andromeda clenched her jaw and reached into her backpack. She pulled out that morning's issue of the Daily Prophet and pushed it across the table to Remus. Sirius looked at the front page over Remus's shoulder with the blaring headline, Sirius Black Associate Wanted for Questioning. Two photos accompanied the article, Sirius's Azkaban mugshot and an old one of Remus that must have come from their Hogwarts yearbook. He was relieved to see that his photo was trying to hide his face as much as he could. It's illegal to out werewolves who haven't been convicted of a crime, 
Andromeda said. But if you so much as sneeze somewhere you're not supposed to, they'll print your lycanthropy status in a heartbeat. You've got to be so careful. What's your plan? We're just gonna go get Peter, Remus said simply. Tomorrow. Go get Peter. Andromeda said. What's that supposed to mean? It means we're going to go to Arthur Weasley's house and get him, Remus replied. What are you going to do, knock on his door? Andromeda asked. That was the general plan, Sirius said. That's not a plan. Andromeda said. A plan requires planning. Not if it's a single-step plan, Sirius said. A single-step plan requires doing. Look, Remus said. We don't have to make this more complicated than it needs to be. We know exactly where Peter is. We're going to make sure the house is empty, break in, grab him, force him to transform into himself, and bring him to the ministry. There are nine people living in that house, Andromeda said. How are you going to make sure it's empty? And do you even know where they live? Sirius and Remus glanced at each other. We haven't gotten that far yet, Remus confessed. There was probably going to be a bit of winging it involved, Sirius said. Andromeda buried her face in her hands and started muttering to herself before lifting her head. No more sex until after Peter is caught, she snapped, looking at Sirius sharply. You've turned his brain to mush. I can't help it, Sirius shrugged, trying to look innocent while Remus's face reddened. Okay, Andromeda conceded finally. It's actually not a terrible plan. Sirius perked up. It's not a good plan, she said, shooting him a repressive look. But it's not terrible. It just needs some finesse. Getting Arthur out of the house will be easy. Just wait for him to go to work. But Molly, leave Molly to me. Okay, Remus nodded. Despite getting punched and scolded, he was happy to have Andromeda back in his orbit, making sure all the finer details were ironed out. And you shouldn't bring Peter to the ministry alone, she said. Dumbledore should be there with you. No. Remus said. No fucking way. Remus, you're both wanted, Andromeda said flatly. You can't just stroll into the ministry. They'd probably stun you on sight and hand Sirius right back to the Dementors. Sirius tried, unsuccessfully, to suppress a shudder. Remus put an arm around his shoulder and pulled him close. He knew Andromeda was right. We can send Dumbledore a Patronus once we get to the house and hold Peter there until he arrives, she said. Her eyes softened. Remus, I know Dumbledore screwed you over. That's putting it mildly, Remus grumbled, squeezing Sirius's shoulder still more tightly. But he's brilliant and you know he always tries to do what's right, she continued. Once he sees Peter with his own eyes, he'll make sure that Sirius gets justice, I'm sure of it. Remus sighed. He was used to people having blind faith in Dumbledore but was surprised to hear it from Andromeda. He hoped she was right. Fine, Remus relented. But if he makes one false move toward Sirius, the gloves are coming off. Andromeda nodded. Sirius elbowed him and smiled. Saving me again, huh? Sirius said. 
Always, Remus agreed and kissed him. All right, break it up, you two, Andromeda said. I need you both sharp. I'm going to Diagon Alley to get Sirius a wand. I'll be back later. Hey Remus, can you add me to your protective enchantments so I can find the tent again? Remus nodded and Sirius got up to hug his cousin. Thank you, Sirius whispered. Anything for you, kiddo, she smiled back. Really? Sirius asked. Of course, she said. Do you think you can bring back some tikka masala, too? And maybe some garlic naan? Oh my god, you are infuriating, Sirius Black, she laughed, yanking him by the shoulder so she could kiss the top of his not bald head. I can't ever say no to you. You're too damn charming for your own good. Love you too, Drom, he said. She turned to Remus and hugged him next. When she looked up at him, she had tears in her eyes. She put a hand on each of his cheeks and gave him a watery smile. We did it, she said. Remus nodded, suddenly choked up, too. Yeah, he agreed. We did. Chapter 27, Wolf, Rat, and Dog Is it incredibly stupid that we're doing this during the day? Remus asked, kicking the hard, frosty ground with the toe of his boot. No, it's incredibly brilliant, Sirius said. It's when they'd least expect it. I don't know if anyone expects to have their secret animagus rat stolen, Remus said. Er, fair point. Remus and Sirius had packed up the campsite and were each shouldering a rucksack, waiting for the signal for Andromeda. Remus found it strange that he was sad about leaving this lonely, deserted place. Living out of a tent wasn't his idea of luxury, but then again, being anywhere with Sirius was, and this was the place Sirius came back to him. Got your wand? Remus asked, and Sirius held up the new-to-him elm wand in response. Yep, Sirius said, twirling it in his fingers. Still feels a bit weird, but... He pointed the wand toward a rock, which he wordlessly levitated and sent zooming through the trees. Gets the job done, he finished. Remus watched Sirius practice a few more spells with the new wand, and a sense of unreality settled over him. Just a few days ago Sirius had been locked in a dark cell in Azkaban. Now look at him. The early morning sunlight filtered through the trees onto Sirius's skin, and he seemed to glow with life and beauty. He's so strong, Remus thought. He's been through so much. And he realized that Sirius's whole life had been conflict. Remus supposed the same could be said about himself, but at least he had those first five years before he'd been bitten. Those years of love and ease must count for something. But not Sirius. Sirius was born into battle, and he'd always been fighting, his family, the war, himself, and was doing it again right now. Well, this is the last fight, Remus resolved. After this, Sirius will finally feel what it's like to be at peace. They both would. Hey, Sirius's voice interrupted Remus's thoughts. Where'd you go? Remus smiled at his familiar question and shrugged. Just thinking, he said. Anything good? Sirius asked. 
Beneath the serious black swagger was that careful watchfulness that he always trained on Remus. Their eyes met and they stepped toward each other, their warm breath escaping into the frosty air in little puffs of steam. Remus lifted a hand and dragged a finger down Sirius's cheek. Yeah, Remus said. Something good. Sirius's smile was suddenly illuminated by the silvery light of a Patronus bursting between them. They each stepped back to watch the dolphin leap through invisible waves as it spoke. Arthur at Ministry. See you soon, it said in Andromeda's clipped enunciation that sounded so much like her sister, Narcissus, especially when they couldn't see her face. As always, thank God for Andromeda, who, within an afternoon, got Sirius a new wand, found out where in Ottery St. Catchpole Arthur and Molly lived, and created a plan for getting every last Weasley out of the house. They agreed that Andromeda would sit discreetly behind a newspaper in the ministry atrium near the fireplaces until she saw Arthur arrive and meet them back at the Weasley house afterwards. Ready? Remus asked Sirius, whose jaw was clenched and who had a steely, determined look in his eyes. Sirius nodded once. You have no idea, he said in a low voice. Remus nodded back. This was it. They joined hands and apparated away. A moment later they landed about 300 feet from the Weasley's ramshackle cottage, which reminded Remus inexplicably of a kind of animal burrow that had been dug up from the ground and plopped in the middle of a field. It was tall and precarious looking, as though with each new child they'd added an extra bedroom on top like a wobbling layer cake. There was a pop behind them. Weird place, huh? Andromeda said as they wheeled around to look at her. She was wearing a backpack, her hair pulled into a thick ponytail, and muggle trainers. She grabbed them each by the shoulder and yanked them down to crouch behind a hedge as a large tawny owl swooped over their heads toward the house. Wait for it. She said. And sure enough, Molly Weasley swung open the window to let the owl in, read the letter attached to its leg, and let out a little shriek. Andromeda grinned wickedly. What did it say? Remus asked. Andromeda had been cagey about her side of the plan, saying she wanted to work out all the kinks before divulging it to them. Molly just got a letter from Ted Tonks, asking her to come to St. Mungo's right away. Seems that Arthur got another body part stuck in a muggle device and this time Ted needs Molly's signature and all his next of kin present to perform the spells needed to get him loose, she said. Are you sure the blacks disowned you? You truly are evil, Sirius said, in awe. Andromeda only giggled. Unsurprisingly, it took Molly a considerable amount of time to wrangle seven children into the fireplace, but soon, they were all gone in a whoosh of flu powder. Andromeda pulled Ted's cologne out of her backpack and doused Remus with it so Peter wouldn't smell him coming. Sirius sniffed Remus and made a disgusted face. Be sure to wash that off before we, well, later, Sirius, said and Remus smirked. Keep it in your pants, Sirius, Andromeda said before turning to Remus once again. I'll send Dumbledore an emergency Patronus. Padfoot will stand guard outside the door. We'll meet back here with the rat. Make it quick. Remus nodded and took a deep breath. He put his rucksack on the ground at Andromeda's feet, cast a silencing spell on himself, 
and glanced backward one more time. A big black dog paced back and forth in front of the doorway and a blast of silvery light exploded from the end of Andromeda's wand into the morning sky. He crept into the Weasley's house through the same window Molly had let the owl into and almost fell into the house, but even his heavy boots slamming into the kitchen floor didn't make a sound. He walked past the breakfast table where eight plates covered with half-eaten toast and bits of sausage lay abandoned in the family's hurry to get to the hospital, and through a small sitting room covered in childhood detritus, crayons, toy wands, blocks, picture books, and miniature broomsticks, before making his way up a narrow winding staircase and onto the first landing. His heart pounded in his throat as he clutched his wand in his sweaty hand, and his mind traveled unwillingly to Peter. Not the lying, manipulative Peter he'd discovered only recently, but to the Peter he knew at Hogwarts, the one who covered for him and Sirius after they almost got caught coming back from the three broomsticks at 2 a.m., stumbling drunk and making out in the corridor outside Gryffindor Tower. The one who'd laugh so hard he'd always pee a little. The one who made sure to save Remus a bit of treacle tart after a full moon if he was too sleepy to come to dinner. The one who stood next to Lily and James at their wedding and held baby Harry as though he was a delicate piece of glass that could break any second. Remus didn't know who that person was anymore, or where he went, or how to reconcile that boy with this other Peter who committed such unspeakable acts against the people who loved him. Remus didn't know if he would ever ask him to explain. He didn't know if he really wanted to find out. He felt bile rise in his throat and he swallowed it down. That Peter was gone, or maybe never really existed. Remus peered into one room that was clearly Molly and Arthur's bedroom and into another across the hall, with two twin beds and posters of dragons and Quidditch players plastering the walls. His eyes scanned the room for something that might indicate a rat lived here, a cage or terrarium, maybe. When he didn't see anything, he climbed the next flight of stairs to another landing with two more bedrooms on each side of the hall. One room was incredibly messy, with two beds and so many toys and clothes covering every surface it looked as though the wardrobe had exploded. The door to the other room was shut and had a little sign taped to it with Percy I. Weasley written in childish handwriting. Remus's memory flashed back to Arthur at the coffee shop, it belongs to our son, Percy. Remus pushed the door open and stepped inside. The room was fussily neat for belonging to a small child, with books and parchment stacked in even rows on a small desk, and not a single toy or piece of clothing on the floor. A glass terrarium sat on the bureau, but Remus's heart sank when he saw it was empty except for a carrot and a bowl of water. Then his eyes fell on Percy's bed and his stomach clenched as though it was being squeezed by an iron fist. A little ball of fur lay curled up on Percy's pillow, snoozing in a warm patch of sunlight. Remus stood over the rat and felt his knees and hands start to shake with that same overwhelming feeling of rage that he'd felt in the magical menagerie while Wormtail hopped playfully onto the shopgirl's shoulder. He gritted his teeth and willed himself calm enough to raise his wand and cast a stunning spell, which landed cleanly and easily with a flash of red light on the sleeping rat. The spell jolted through Wormtail, who tumbled off the edge of the pillow and onto Percy's bed as though he were a stuffed animal. He lay limp and motionless and utterly at Remus's mercy, but he wasn't taking any chances. Patrificus totalus, he whispered, and the rat went rigid. 
Remus pulled a heavy leather pouch from his pocket and levitated Peter inside it, he didn't think he'd be able to stop himself from killing the rat if he touched him, and tucked it into the inner pocket of his jacket. He stood in the middle of the boy's bedroom for a second longer, in awe. He'd done it. He'd freed Sirius and found Peter. His heart raced as he left Percy's room and was heading down the stairs two at a time when he heard Padfoot growling and barking outside. He paused only for a minute before breaking into a run. He tore through the living room and into the kitchen, where the door burst open on its own with a bang and revealed a sight that made Remus's knees buckle. Dumbledore stood towering over Andromeda, his wand pointed directly at her, while Padfoot growled and barked between them. Albus, she yelled. You have to listen to me. Why would I have called you here if they're guilty, just listen. Listen to me. But Dumbledore simply lowered his wand and pointed it at the dog, who instantly turned back into Sirius with a blast of golden light. He flicked his wand again and thick ropes coiled around Sirius's arms and legs. Something in Remus snapped. No, he yelled, and Dumbledore wheeled around in time to see Remus barreling toward him. There was no time for magic. Dumbledore raised his wand, but Remus was quicker and landed a solid punch squarely on Dumbledore's jaw. Andromeda screamed as Dumbledore stumbled to the ground. There's more where that came from if you don't fucking listen, Remus growled, blasting the ropes apart in a single motion pulling Sirius to his feet. He pushed Sirius harder than he meant to, making him stumble backwards a little as he stepped in front of him. Peter Pettigrew is alive. I have him right here. Dumbledore's eyes widened but he didn't move. You're going to take us to the ministry. You're going to put the right person in jail. You're going to make sure Sirius is cleared, Remus heaved. He raised his wand and pointed it directly at Dumbledore's heart. You tried to convince the man I love that I wanted to kill him. And you helped kill Lily and James in the process, Remus said evenly. His heart was pounding against his ribs, but his hand was steady. He felt rage and magic coursing through his veins, felt it move into his arm and hand like an electric current that was eager to be expelled from his wand. If you touch Sirius again, I will kill you. Something shifted in Dumbledore's eyes. What was it? Regret? Sadness? Dumbledore's gaze traveled slowly between Remus and Sirius, taking in Sirius's hand on Remus's shoulder, the way Remus's arm curled behind him around Sirius's waist, Remus's wide-legged, protective stance that tried to cover Sirius's whole body with his own. Dumbledore's eyes went slightly unfocused, as though remembering something that happened long ago. Finally, Dumbledore seemed to return to himself. He got to his knees and nodded. Show me, he said in a broken voice. Remus pulled the leather pouch out of his pocket and reached inside for the rat. The stunning spell had worn off, but the total body-bind curse was still intact. Only Wormtail's eyes moved, swiveling in a panic between Sirius and Remus. Remus put Wormtail down. He and Sirius stood shoulder to shoulder, the rat struggling against its invisible bonds and squeaking on the ground at their feet. Ready, Sirius? Remus said, raising his wand and pointing it directly at the creature's heart. Together? Sirius asked, looking at Remus, and raising his own wand.
Remus met his eye. I think so. Chapter 28, Epilogue Remus and Sirius didn't go to Peter's trial. They didn't read about it in the Daily Prophet. When a letter came from Mrs. Pettigrew, Remus burned it without opening it. When the ministry sent him an order of Merlin medallion, he sent it back with a note saying, fuck off, please, that part had been Sirius's idea. They didn't even appear before the ministry when Sirius was officially cleared. They simply received the note from Dumbledore about it and spent the evening steaming up their London flat with the door locked, the curtains drawn, and a very strong muffliato spell cast in the hallway so they wouldn't disturb their neighbors. Afterward, they lay in bed, their skin hot and their breathing still heavy, when Sirius buried his face in Remus's neck and inhaled. You always smell good, he said. Remus laughed. Thanks, he said, lacing his fingers through Sirius's. So, Sirius said, propping himself up on his elbow and gazing down into Remus's sleepy amber eyes. Where to next? Remus rolled his head on the pillow to look at him. What do you mean? he asked. Back in the tent we said. Screw London. And I'm ready to. You forget how big the world is when you're locked in a cell the size of a closet. I want to see it, Sirius said. Shouldn't we get jobs or something? Remus asked with half a laugh. I'm filthy rich, Mooney, Sirius said. And besides. We've only ever been students or soldiers. Let's live a little. Just for a while. He paused and looked down at their intertwined fingers. For, for James, he added in a whisper. Remus felt a lump form in his throat. He met Sirius's eyes which were glistening with tears. He nodded, grabbed his wand off the bedside table, and conjured a globe with a flick of his wrist. It hovered in the air and Remus spun it on its axis. Close your eyes, he said to Sirius. Now point. Where to next? Finite. Thanks for listening to this text to speech podfic composed by Burning Aurora.